Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty here on a Friday afternoon. Sorry for dropping this episode late today. I had a had a long morning. Uh, watched a, an hour-long demo of the Unchained Capitals Caravan product. Dope. Go check that out um, if you haven't already. Going to be a game-changer for the multi-sig game. Um, then I had a dentist appointment. I had to run to a lunch. Now I'm just getting back to my apartment. And finally I have time to record these ads and get this episode up. I really like this episode. I had an incredible time earlier this week sitting down with Will Reeves from uh, the Fold team, the founder of Fold. Uh, we had a good time drinking some very, very good mezcal that Will was kind enough to provide for the for the recording. Uh, we waxed poetic for about two hours about Fold, how the app came to be, what it's like building a distributed team, what it's like building uh, on a protocol like Lightning, which isn't fully fleshed out yet and how you sort of bridge the gap between uh, new users um, who aren't as technical and the cypherpunks that we hope everybody can be eventually uh, when they are leveraging technology like Bitcoin. I think you guys are really going to like this episode. Um, Will's a great dude. Uh, Wound up rapping about uh, wine country by the end of the episode. Got pretty cosmic. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by Cash App. As you know, Cash App is the simplest way to send and save money. And now it's the simplest way to try to grow your money, introducing Cash App investing. Unlike investing tools that only let you buy entire shares of stock, Cash App lets you instantly invest as little or as much as you want. Excuse me. We're stacking slivers of shares now, freaks. This way, when your favorite company's stock is just a little too expensive, just a little out of your reach, you can still own a, a piece with as little as one dollar. You can stack it. You can sl- stack a sliver, a dollar's worth of a sliver of a stock. There we go. And because uh, Cash App is directly connected to your bank account, there are no four to five day waiting periods for inbound transfers. So you can start investing today. Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square and members SIPC. And as always, they still have the incredible Boost program, which I use every day. I use it at my local coffee shop this morning. Saved myself a dollar. I usually use that dollar to tip the the, uh, the coffee people. You, you get a free tip in. You get some good social cue points there. And then uh, you're, you're really not spending that dollar. You're saving it. Or are you spending it? You are spending it. But it's a, a dollar you would not have otherwise had if you did not have your coffee boost on. And on top of that, of course, you're still going to be able to stack sats. Uh, sell sats, send sats, receive sats on the app as well. And if you have not downloaded the app yet, what the hell are you waiting for? Use the code stacking sats. That's one word. Uh, and you're going to get $10 when you sign up for the Cash App. And Cash App will send $10 to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> Owls Lacrosse. So download the Cash App from the App Store or Google Play Store today. Use the code stacking sats. Get that $10. Help our good friends out. And then go check out our good friends at Casa. Freaks, how confident are you in your key security? What keeps you up at night in your personal OPSEC with your personal OPSEC plan? Have you gotten set up with multisig yet? Does your key setup have a single point of failure? How protected are your seed phrases? Are you even asking yourself these questions? Our good friends at Casa are thinking about these questions, and they've drummed up one of the smartest and most secure ways to hodl your Bitcoin. No KYC, no altcoins, no percentage fee on your Bitcoin. No one's standing between you and your keys. These guys have really worked hard to create a white glove service for multi-sig for you freaks. All right, so use the promo code TFTC to get up to $250 off your Casa membership. They have many different tiers. 
And you can find out about those tiers by emailing the CASA team directly at membership at team.casa for a free demo. Put them through their test, ask them your hardest OPSEP questions, have them walk you through the product and the different tiers because they do have different tiers, but all memberships come with a full set of hardware wallets for your multi-sig plus the CASA node. Now the CASA node too. Uh, Faraday bags and early access to all future CASA products. And if you're in that diamond and platinum membership level, you're going to get 24-7 VIP service, dedicated client advisors, and custom onboarding and OPSEC plans. So go check them out. Go to keys.casa slash keymaster to check out their multi-sig or email them at membership at team.casa. Use that code TFTC and get up to $250 off. Love what they're building. Love everything that's going on right now in Bitcoin. Love this conversation with Will Reeves. Learn about the Fold app, what they're doing, and a little bit about wine country. Enjoy, freaks. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. I gotta take a sip because I just cheers and didn't sip yet. It's your boy Marty Ben drinking some delicious mezcal provided by our boy Will Reeves. Will, welcome to the podcast. How's it going, freaks? Marty, good to be here. Thanks for coming. For you freaks that don't know, Will is the founder of uh, Fold App, uh, an app that just launched couple months ago end of september correct yeah we're we're we've been in beta for a little bit um and end of september but you know we've been around for we've been around for a while been around for quite a while yeah we've seen we've seen the ups and downs of bitcoin yeah um before we get into the fold app you were just saying you're in asia i was uh let's see it's been about a month and a half out in in thailand which was an experience what was that like you know i had to take the the took my dad out for his um 65th birthday flex the remote work possibilities world worldwide bitcoin um and had the time of my life i used to i I used to go to asia quite a bit growing up my dad was a um wine salesman out there and so he would bring me when i was young super blonde and uh just take me to like dinners with the where the red army would be buying wine from them and just i was just completely in awe and had no idea what was going on so it's good to have a return that's pretty badass. Yeah, yeah we were uh, pre-interview talking here. You're from Northern California, from wine country. I'm a, a big fan of wine country. And uh, your boys with uh, a wine club that we're part of, Scribe. Yeah, love Scribe. Shout out to Scribe. Um, you'll have to come by next time you're out there. Give me a, give me a shout. Uh, I definitely do. Um, when you said your boys with those guys, I was like, I'm definitely going to text them the next time I'm out there. Um, but so what was your... How did you hop around Thailand? Did you stay in one spot? Or no, you... I, I think I went just about everywhere you can go. I, I started in Bangkok, saw that absolutely wild city. <laughs> um, the just riding around the tuk tuks there, street food was phenomenal. Um, then up north, got to see some island action down south. Almost crossed paths with Dan Held when he was out there, actually, which would which would have been quite a thing. Quite. Quite uh, it's always great running into Bitcoiners in random parts of the world. They're everywhere. Were you were you actively seeking out Bitcoiners when you're on your travels? No, but it's you know of course you're just out there. You're you know you're 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 putting stuff out there, and then you know people hit you in the DM saying, "Oh, I'm 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 in the town right next uh, right next to you. Let's hang out." Um, I actually had a crazy. I don't even want to blow up this guy's opsec, but very large Bitcoiner, uh, very active on Twitter. I was driving in, in Chiang Mai. I look out my window 
and he's just walking down the street with his family. <laughs> I had no idea he actually lived there. Um, and so uh, I couldn't get away from him. It's hard to get away from us. We're a small group, but we're everywhere. How many people were in Chiang Mai? Oh, thousands. <laughs> thousands. <laughs> uh, what's, uh, what was your favorite part of Thailand? Uh, food? Uh, food Views. was amazing. People were incredible. My favorite thing I did, I, I went on his boat and just floated down the Mekong River for like three days with this, um, about a group of 20 people. And so you were with the same group. You had no idea who they were getting on the, getting on the boat. And then at the end, you're just like playing cards with them, you know, sharing beer laos and uh, just, you know, the stuff that you see out there is just incredible. Yeah. Asia's a, a, a frontier I've not explored yet. Yeah. I think I've got to kind of sack up and get over to Asia. I've heard beautiful things. I'd love to, uh, to check out Thailand in particular. It's a good spot. I'll give you recommendations. I actually got, speaking of more Bitcoiners, Peter McCormick has an incredible um, itinerary that he can give out. Did, so, he, did you yeah, uh, I, I, I follow as much as I could. I, I, it checks out. What, uh, what's the itinerary? Is there activities, uh, bars? You know, it was more just the spots where to go to make sure that you're hitting. It's a big, it's a big place. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, um, so it was just making sure, you know, you can, you can go a lot of places. And so just finding out the right spots and, you know, good itinerary. What was it like working while you're over there? Uh, insomniac. That's what <laughs> it makes you become. Uh, the, the time change is, is difficult. So you basically start at around 8 p.m. And uh, you take the late shift right as everyone's waking up and you probably, you know, wake, wake up again at 6 a.m. But the good part is that you have the whole day just to mess around, explore. So that was positive. Yeah. And it's, um, no, it's, uh, I work for a remote team too. And it's interesting, uh, the coming from an office job to uh, a remote team, the, the uh, sort of habits you have to develop and you have to be responsible for yourself. Oh yeah. And, and, and the, the rest of the team needs to flex as well, even to just where everyone else is. Right. And so I think the beauty of like a remote team is, is, is understanding that, you know, people are going to find themselves in different situations. You know, life is going to take them different places, family, work stuff. And, you know, the, the team is less about is, is, is as equally flexible in like in the, in the work and also in the kind of lifestyle that they let, you know, everyone else live around them. All right. So I guess we'll, start uh our dive into fold from a unique angle how do you go about picking the people to be on this uh distributed team this is uh this is what this is one of the things where i'm constantly thinking of because you know we're you know we're small we're about six people and so each person you add is 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 changes could considerably change the entire culture could for better or for worse and so far we've been super lucky that it's uh for whatever reason, and I'm starting to figure out what the formula is, is that we've been, we've been choosing, we've been betting on the right people. So what we've learned is, um, you know, there's a lot of people who will come within the, within kind of the Bitcoin or crypto ecosystem that are, you know, looking for work, looking for gigs, but, um, and you, you want someone passionate about just what we're doing. You, you know, it's not an easy place to work. And so you need to believe in something and find your place in it. And so that's important, but even more that is just being excellent at what you do. And outside of that, bringing a fresh perspective is, 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 is what I look for. But I'd say the key thing for us is that every single person on the team was a direct referral or had worked with someone else on the team. 
So um, everybody had uh, spent time a year, two years already working with, you know, one of the other teammates and, and brought them on. It was like vouched for them, already had a, you know, a, a good way of, of working with them that has just makes them able to just get on the team, hit the ground running and just like mesh with the culture. Like um, after Crypto Springs, we did our first offsite in, uh, in Palm Springs. We got the whole team down there and you know, it's one thing to, to see each other on Hangouts or Zoom every day and, and work there. But when you get everyone in the room, it's like, all right, how how are we all going to act? We like each other, you know, <laughs> and uh, this was one of the, just the most fun times I've had just hanging out with good people. And so when you are also doing good work, you know, you're doing something right. Yeah, that's I mean, common theme on this podcast is uh, pumping the, the amount of good people that you meet along the way in this Bitcoin journey. So. What the hell are you guys building? Fold app. Uh, I've been using it a bit uh, actually to buy Amazon vouchers to shop on Amazon using Bitcoin via the Lightning Network. I think I've been buying $50 voucher. I think I bought $100. No, $50. Um, I bought a $50 voucher, $250 vouchers via Lightning. Transaction went, I did it from my Zap wallet and did it pretty seamlessly within the app and just have loaded up my Amazon account. That's uh, been my experience up to this point so what uh what are we building at fold why are you building it how did you get to this point yeah i mean in short we're we're, we're trying to build a, a trojan horse for hyper bitcoinization how do we get bitcoin to the most amount of people in the shortest amount of time while educating them about about what it is because ultimately fold is trying to bring Bitcoin and make it accessible and rewarding to everybody. And so that means reaching far beyond those that even currently have it. And so, um, you know, right now as it stands, uh, Fold uh, allows you to earn Bitcoin while shopping at, you know, the retailers and businesses that you, you visit every day, um, whether that's through a credit card um, or you can even earn even more cash back if you use Lightning and Bitcoin. So the idea is that we make, we lower the barrier to entry to, to gaining exposure to Bitcoin make it as simple as possible, but don't stop there. The idea is that we're going to continue bringing these, these users, these, these, these noobs down the rabbit hole, introducing them more and more to what Bitcoin, the asset can do along the way. And so my favorite use case and my favorite user journey is, you know, the person that has been um, curious about Bitcoin, you know, they sync their, their credit card or debit card and, and start to earn it. You know, they see the numbers start to go up a little bit and then they look and see, okay, I understand a little bit what Bitcoin is and uh, I, I've been taught about like what a wallet is. Now I've, I've been <clears throat> introduced what a, you know, to some good wallets um, and on Fold I can get like you know, 3 4% more back um, if I start spending Bitcoin. And so what you see people do is start to transfer and this is true of 20% of our users that come in um, with credit card and they <clears throat> transfer over to spending with Lightning in a period of about 30 to 40 days. And so, you know, the idea is that we're educating about Bitcoin as a you know, store of value, as an asset of savings that they can start to accumulate. Um, but at the end is start to show all the various different ways Bitcoin can be used. Why do you think your users are deciding to use Lightning predominantly? Well, partly it's because we only allow them in the app to use Lightning. <laughs> um, you know, we Fold originally was on-chain payments uh, into Starbucks. And you can imagine what that experience is like holding up the line for 10 minutes. You may pay a, you know, a hefty fee for a $5 cup of coffee. You may pay, you know, a dollar, $2, and it just makes zero sense for any kind of retail payment capacity. 
And so um, we knew that Lightning was going to be the, the only place that would make Bitcoin uh, a uh, ability to, to make it as a store or as a medium of exchange at all. And so we knew that this would be the great experiment was going to be with Lightning. And so pretty much with this launch of the app is that we, we just cut right to the chase and uh, um, are allowing users to directly experience Layer 2. Um, as seamlessly and easy as possible. So we work directly with a lot of the you know, great wallets to make sure that onboarding is great um, so that users' first experience there is as rewarding as they could have expected from their credit card, if not even more. And we, we try to incentivize it more by, you know, by giving pretty much unprecedented cashback rewards to them in Bitcoin. What's it like uh, pitching this to the, the merchants on the other side? This is, uh, you know, there's the, the, the story of merchant adoption in Bitcoin has is, is been long <laughs> and fraught and, um, you know, the, the original, uh, you know, uh, days of going to merchants and saying, you know, this is a whole new asset that you need to accept. There's all these people that wanting to spend it, you know, that just never came to fruition. That, that led to a lot of false starts, really. And so you had, you know, I think there was, you know, Expedia, I think, or Priceline and Steam, all these, uh, you know, big retailers, you know, said, okay, let's check it out. And the demand wasn't there. And part of the reason is that the experience of spending Bitcoin on chain is absolutely terrible. There's no incentives at all for anyone to do that. And so now when we look at this is that we've, we've changed the conversation. It's number one saying to these merchants, we know, uh, that you're looking for new, new, new customers. You know, that is a need that you have right now. And there are a lot of people out there, especially young people you're trying to get their dollars, who would rather receive their rewards and loyalty points in Bitcoin as opposed to you know, their, your debased internal loyalty system or your airline miles that constantly get changed. And so um, you know, for, for consumers, it's, it says you know, Bitcoin's pretty clearly a, a better reward Maybe not money in their eyes yet, but it's very, very clearly a better reward than anything else on the market. And so we can approach these merchants and say, this is a, this is a big opportunity for you to stand out from the crowd. And so that's initially where the, the conversation starts is just how do we get more customers to you? Um, but the idea is to uh, do the same thing we do to, to users is to educate them more and more, bring them further and further down the rabbit hole of the other benefits Bitcoin can bring. And so very quickly the the conversation changes to okay what else what else can this what can add to you to you as a merchant your payment processor and uh what they see is that when users spend like uh, via lightning or bitcoin with us there are zero chargebacks and there are zero processing fees and for merchants that's multi multi-billion dollar problem that they face every every year and you know, uh, on average, their their transaction fee is two to five percent, and it's increasing more and more as credit cards are trying to give more and more rewards to lure new mer lure new users. They're putting that more on the merchants to pay more fees, and so it's it's kind of a way that it's hitting them right at this interesting point where fraud is increasing with with credit and debit cards, processing fees are too, and so they start to at least think about this. It's now we're definitely not in a, in a place right now where they're going to start adopting it at all. This is, you know, for the most part, they're still like, okay, what is Bitcoin? Why are there no chargebacks? What does finality and instant settlement mean? Um, and so, you know, it's, we just see it as really a starting point, um, with rewards that we could just can open up further and further education. And now it's beautiful. And it's, I think 
I, I completely agree with your uh, your thought that Lightning is going to enable like more people transacting on Bitcoin. My, my, I myself have sent more Bitcoin transactions this year than any other year up to this point. And, 95% of them have been lightning transactions. And that's actually something we've uh, noticed on our site, which is actually pretty interesting. I'm interested to see if you, you're seeing this and uh, fold your users as well uh, for TFTC, our BTC pay server, uh, something like 86% of all the transactions that we have received uh, are via the lightning network, but they only make up like 9% of the total value we received. So yeah. And I think that's because of the dime bag and people are just like sending 10, 10 cent little things. But. You know, Lightning Network has been historically, you know, if you talked about a year ago, average payment on Lightning Network is going to be, you know, a couple hundred, couple thousand sets maximum. Um, and this was kind of the idea, you know, Fold is actually also behind Lightning Pizza. And that was kind of part of the experiment was, mm -hmm. was all right. Let's now bring Lightning, you know, to the next level in terms of transaction size and do make it something happen in the real world. You know, we are we've proven that microtransactions work really well. Y'alls, all of that's you know, really exciting stuff. Now, what happens when we start sending you know twenty five dollar transactions through Lightning? And that at the point was was really rare to have happen. Yeah, I believe I bought some Dominoes. Uh, you, you were not you were not alone. Yeah, this was this was I mean just. Lightning Pizza was a success beyond our wildest imagination. The full team created it equally as just a project for us to learn about Lightning as much as like, okay, let's, let's see if people will actually even use Lightning for this. Like it was totally not something that um, was guaranteed to happen. And so let's dive into a couple of things here. Back to like the chargebacks, but then on top of that, privacy as well. Like so you were describing before we hit record, record record um how uh one of your biggest headaches right now is credit card fraud and basically the ills of collecting credit card data from other companies that have leaked that data onto the dark web yeah i um, mean it's anyone who uh accepts you know fiat or credit and debit cards faces this massive problem retailers everybody it's it's you know going through a checkout line um at a given retailer is is essentially entering a, a battle zone like you swipe your card, you're giving your data to your bank, you're giving your da data to the retailer, you're giving it to the corresponding uh, retailer's bank, you're doing it through anyone who co-branded that credit card, so if it's an Amazon card, you're also giving it to Amazon. Um, you're giving it to your loyalty or a, re or a reward point app that you have, you're giving it to uh, any kind of financial planning apps like Mint, um, and not to mention your credit card networks, and all of them have permissions to do almost anything with your data. And now they make it as about as hard as you how hard as possible to not let you know that you actually have some control over this and you can opt out to a lot of this madness, but for the most part it's free game every time you swipe your card and it's giving not only your location but your personal details, your private keys of your credit card, your transaction details, what you're buying, which ultimately just creates um, multiple honeypots for both attackers and advertisers alike, which creates this idea that now credit card and personal transaction data is is rife on the dark web and, and freely available to honestly whoever wants it. And so it is a problem for anybody who accepts credit cards. It's 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 it's, it's pretty crazy. Now, and then I was we were talking about the Vice documentary, and we also mentioned in the episode with Wiz, but 
it's crazy how accessible it is. And this documentary in particular was in Atlanta and uh, underground gang network, basically using Bitcoin to buy this information on the dark web and then creating credit cards and, uh, basically committing credit card fraud and all these merchants got fucked via chargebacks. Yeah. And, and this is why, you know, when we talk about, you know, spending, spending Bitcoin, Fold can actually, and we've, we've done this before. So one thing we notice is that because we work with prepaid programs, that's how Fold works, you know, right? You send us a credit card transaction or a um, Lightning or Bitcoin transaction, and we convert that into a prepaid uh, equivalent at the merchant. And every year after all of the um, prepaid conventions that happen or nationally, we get inbound from all the retailers saying, hey, you know, let's tell me what you're, what you're up to. Like, you know, our, our friends over at X retailer told us that, you know, they saw you guys were, uh, you're working with them. Like, can you tell us about it? And this is all opportunities for, to explain to them some of the benefits that, that come with this different type of way of transacting with Bitcoin. And that number one, that it doesn't have to be a painful onboarding experience for anybody, but the benefits that you could potentially get are, are pretty crazy. And so for them, they understand the benefit that it's a constant cat and mouse game to stop fraud and to protect your customers. And that is only getting increasingly hard. And when you're a retailer and your game is logistics or making sure this, you know, the, the shelves have inventory on them you're not the best at, at protecting your customer's data, you know? And even so, you think maybe, you know, maybe a big tech company like Google is. In fact, no, Google is one of the largest purchasers of this credit card user data at these retailers. The only difference is they're buying it instead of hacking it. Yeah, it just came out that they're partnering with Citigroup to basically create Google wallets or whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, and... You can see why they're, they're trying to finally, you know, create the full loop between, you know, online advertising and actually in, in-store spend. And that's like, that is the holy grail for them. And, you know, this is very, very clear way to get to it. What's so bad about it, though? We should be getting served ads that, uh, of stuff we probably are likely going to buy. Is it, is it that bad? It's, it's a good, good, good point. And that's something that we get all the time. Okay, why, why should I care about privacy? What, you know... And so at Fold, the, 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 the perspective we take because we get that so much is that we're just going to incentivize you to be more private. We're going to give you more cash to stay private. But really the reason is, is you know, you have stories like um, there was a, uh, a guy, I think in D.C., um, he uh, was shopping at a supermarket and there was some kind of spill and he slipped on it, fell and like broke his back and um, he sued the, the supermarket. And the supermarket goes in, into his loyalty um, points and looks at all of his transactions to find a history of buying alcohol. And they use that in the court case against him to say that, hey, you were probably drunk. Pause. But also terrible. <laughs> it's, it, it's, I mean, it's, and that's some cold hearted shit. There, there was a, a, fire, a firefighter was accused of arson. Um, because uh, he, um, looking at his credit card details, they saw that he bought a fire starter at a hardware store. And that was used as evidence that he was an arsonist. And all of these people came out to be, you know, totally, you know, um, exonerated. And it wasn't like, the guy wasn't actually an arsonist. But it just goes to show that there are ways that data can be used that you just never could expect. And luckily, 
you know, right now we theoretically live in a place that is the most benign to, you know, lazy data practices and lack of privacy. Um, and we can very quickly see, um, you know, in uh, other places around the world where this can be weaponized against people very, very quickly. And if the infrastructure is there, it will be used. So it's about creating, you know, um, uh, uh, new infrastructure that protects people. And this is why, like, for us, it's important it's not just about bringing like Bitcoin little b currency to payments and rewards. It's about bringing like Bitcoin big B, the ethos of Bitcoin to it, privacy, sovereignty to the products themselves, as opposed to just slapping Bitcoin on something that's already out there. And so how, how does Fold uh, allow a user to transact more privately than they otherwise would? Uh, if they use Bitcoin as opposed to a credit card, because I can see you guys sort of being a bridge, and you're you're in this form now. But over time, you're like a Pokemon that evolves and sheds some some features and slowly transitions to Bitcoin only. Um, is that I, I don't want to assume or ask a leading question, but uh, is that under? No, I mean that's like we consider where we are as the product itself today is supposed to meet the user at where they are today. They don't even need to know about Bitcoin, and we're going to create something that, that entices them to come in. So we have to start at a really elementary level. And the idea is that we take them on this journey as the product evolves uh, to become more private, to become more conscious about what happens with their data, to, um, uh, uh, to avoid the common kind of pitfalls that we currently see, and not just by beating it over the head that they need to do it, but just incentivizing them. And so... You know, right now, um, you know, Fold works with prepaid cards and prepaid cards have a long history of being something is used to protect um, anonymity, you know, for better or for worse. And we just use that in an everyday retail context to give that same um, privacy to uh, everyday consumers and shoppers. And so the idea is that you can go through any of these checkout lines with Fold and avoid that entire line of people putting their hands in your data and their, you know, with their own surveillance. Um, and it kind of throws a wrench in the whole thing. It just doesn't give them access, doesn't allow them to connect necessarily an identity with transaction data. Um, and so it gives a level of privacy. It's not perfect, but it's by far leaps and bounds better than what is currently available. And so our idea is to constantly evolve the product to continuously you know, build this case and, and build these features for users. And so the merchant just, to them, it looks like they're just interacting with Fold. To them, it looks like there's an anonymous credit, anonymous credit that's there and settled. And, um, you know, this is, you know, the way that, the way that, you know, we can talk about this to merchants is, you know, there's the, there's the long game and there's the short game. The short game is merchants are, uh, right now experience a problem with rising processing fees that they cannot change or do anything about. You have Walmart trying to create their own parallel POS systems to try to get around Visa and MasterCard fees. Um, you have American Express just announcing today that they are going around to retailers and paying them a half a million dollars to take um, American Express, um, who historically has the highest fees, you know, 4% for a given transaction, just to take it. And the reason is American Express gets that much value back from all the transaction data that's going to happen. And so for merchants, they're looking right now for alternative ways of, of accepting money from their users. And so you start to see 
a weird pattern that the number one um, uh, uh, app in the app store, finance app, was Starbucks. And the way the Starbucks app works is that you don't sync a credit card to that. You load gift cards into it. And essentially what they've done is divert a massive amount of their consumer spending away from a credit card into internal prepaid credit that for them lowers, lowers fees, lowers chargebacks. Um, uh, Uber is doing the exact same way. And so we see this massive shift and, and desire for, for them to search for alternatives. And so Fold is really, um, um, when, they, when we talk to merchants, really presenting that, that narrative and that vision. Now, our long game is, is the idea that um, merchants shouldn't be holding this data in, to begin with. And in fact, it's more of a liability for them than anything. And so um, that's not something that we come out and talk about. It's not our first you know, <laughs> uh, point. It's not what happens when I get in the boardroom. It's not exactly what I say first, but we'll get there in a couple years, five, 10 years. That's because that that's going to be the case. This game of cat and mouse will, will always be against the, the merchants. They will be at a disadvantage. Is there an equal amount of stress these, men- these merchants feel uh, from having to handle this data as uh, the amount of joy they get from profiting off of it? or is... You know, it's, it's hard because it's one of those cases where, you know, if you're a small merchant, it's not that big of a deal, right? right? You, 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 you may have hurt a couple customers, but it's, 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 and first of all, you're not a target like large, large retailers. Target or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no names. And so the idea is that in last year, 50% of retailers were hacked or compromised in some way. And that 50% uh, translates into like hundreds of millions of people getting hacked and their data going out into, you know, freely available to advertisers, attackers, whoever. And so, um, uh, you know, for them, the idea is uh, they benefit from the tracking, the advertising uh, abilities that they also get. But they also know that when users, when this PR comes out, that, that, you know, 50% of their customers now have been compromised. It's, it's, it's been proven and studied that those users don't come back for another six months. Like there's some crazy figure that people just decide to change their habits away because they feel it's unsafe. Now, the, the un, unwritten rule is that it's going to happen to the other retailer you're, you're switching your spending to anyway. It's a, it's a structural problem, not a problem with one retailer overall. Yeah. Why, why do we keep doing it though? Like, was there, like I'm trying like, is there just like a sunk cost fallacy in, in the way all this data is select collected, excuse me, that was created like in the eighties, seventies or eighties when this credit card system was being created? Like, I, I mean, what, like you, you look at right now that, you know, the whole thing of, you know, the data is the new, um, oil, you know, this whole, the whole, the story of the eighties to nineties to now has been the ever expanding mining of data out of customers to then use to market to them more and make them even more customers. And it's just been about how pervasive and how deep can they get. And they're only getting better and more and more. And it's historically been a source of massive value and money. That's why we have Google, which is, is so, um, so powerful because that's what they're entirely based on. And so it's a business model that's definitely proven out. Um, but I think it's also been blinded by how fast it's come on. And we, you know, there's some negative externalities to this that aren't being accounted for that I think retailers are starting to understand. Yeah. Like we could be erecting the Chinese panopticon social credit system 
uh, of our future without even realizing it, right? And that's that's the thing. It's like it's you know like for one, the for one day they could just flip a switch and turn it on us. Yeah, and it's it's not. It's one of those. It's like when the infrastructure is there, it will be used. It, if if it can happen, it will happen. And so you know, politics change, larger macro things shift, and it's not it's not um, you know unbelievable that that things will be weaponized that were once maybe good. Like maybe I was. Maybe I really did like the fact that I got more targeted ads instead of just these, you know, remember, you know, early days of the internet where you just get these like massive banners in your face that weren't relevant at all. Yeah. One day you're getting served uh, links to the merch store for Rage Against the Machine. The next year uh, you're getting sent to the gulag for having listened to them on Spotify. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Be careful, freaks. Be aware. It is. uh, Do you think. And that's a big theme around here too. Is like I think people are just too apathetic. I don't, I'm, yeah. I'm worried about my fellow man. That, that's 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 one of the things that we like. We're, we're one of the biggest challenges that I see that we have. Is people ask, how, "Okay, you care about privacy. You care about you know this. How do you make people care about that? Why do, people don't care? People aren't going to pay for that. People don't want that. And it's like you're you're right. Generally, you're right. The pain has not been felt for whatever reason. It is something that everyone says they want, but will do really very minimal things to actually get it. And so our position on this is, okay, well, we know how to make people do things and that's pay them to do it. And so we are taking the, the um, uh, efficiencies that you know, technology like Bitcoin can bring to uh, you know, a retail environment, harvesting that, those savings and giving it right back to users as more cash back more than they could ever expect from a credit card or you know anything else and so and it just happens to come with all of these other good things and so how do you uh see your users balancing the the hodl versus spend versus uh spend and replace and sats back uh ecosystem do you see sort of uh unknown externality and uh uh user um, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, tendencies that sort of arise when they're like, all right, I can get sats back, but I have to spend Bitcoin, but I can get around this if I just at the same time, like buy a little bit of it on the cash app disclaimer, cash app's a sponsor. Um, <laughs> or, or something like, do you, do you see any weird things popping up or people using the app in, in ways you did not expect? Yeah. I mean, um, this has been one of the f- amazing things to watch like the product itself provides a very in real time the warring narratives that are the seemingly warring narratives. Oh, is it a store of value? Is it a medium exchange? Because it provides opportunity for both. You can sync your credit card, spend your fiat, and start stacking sats and never, never spend them, huddle them. Very soon, you'll be able to withdraw it to your, your personal wallet, um, and it supports that use case. It also supports the use case of, of spending your Bitcoin. And it's been really interesting to bring you know, historically fold was, was about spending, was about spending Bitcoin. So we had hardcore users that were there for that use case. There might've been also, you know, they were also hodlers, but, um, they were there and wanted to spend and felt that there was value in doing that. So we helped them do that. Now, when we released, um, support for fiat, we get a bunch of these maximalists and hardcore hodlers coming back saying, now I can finally use fold. Thank you for providing this feature so I can, you know, I don't have to spend, uh, my Bitcoin, but I can still support, you know, a Bitcoin company like yourself. I'm like, great. But the awesome thing is that those same uh, um, users will see them. And about two weeks later, 
they're like, hey, check this out. And they're getting using services like um, SparkSwap um, or, you know, in, you know, in the future it could be, you know, Jack Mahler's Olympus or Escher that are instantaneous USD to lightning invoices. And essentially it's an instant purchase of light of Bitcoin and an instant sell. So there's no exposure to capital gains in this, in this scenario. Um, what, which, you know, historically has been a huge friction for users spending Bitcoin. It's, it is a headache to do your taxes at the end of the year. Now we're working on making that easier. Um, uh, a couple partnerships with companies that help you uh, do this uh, accounting, but, one of the biggest things has been the, the capital gains exposure that you could have that, you know, that could totally wipe out the value that you got in spending it. And users are now taking advantage of these services, sending us videos saying, Hey, check this out. I'm spending with USD, but I'm stacking sats at the Bitcoin level on fold. And I'm coming out in total with more Bitcoin than I started. Yeah, so they buy via like uh, a spark swap. Yeah, for the Spark Swap right now has been the the most popular use case, and people have been using that the most, um, which is desktop right now. Hopefully, you know, Trey, let's get that on mobile. Um, but that allows for instantaneous um, buy of of Bitcoin into a Lightning channel, spend it directly in the same invoice twofold, which so right there, instant buy, instant sell, and then you get advantage of the. the it's another abstraction of privacy there, where your bank only sees that you're using SparkSwap or something like that. Exactly, and we're, I mean, we're going to see these. You know, we 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 use what we can, and some of these are daisy chaining things together to obfuscate things, and other ways it's just to get more efficiencies. And you start to look at this opportunity. It's like you have um, uh, um, a user who is has no idea about Bitcoin. But under the hood, this POS system is converting into Bitcoin so that the merchant doesn't take the processing hit and has no exposure to chargeback, but the end consumer is none the wiser. So you start to see how Bitcoin can start to be used in retail context in a mass adoption scenario without them ever knowing it's happening. And it's equally incentivized for both parties. Feels like it's happening. Feels like it's happening. Like today, did you see that... Uh a video game drop of uh, like, oh, the first person shooter one. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I haven't checked that out, but I, I saw it. It's crazy how how fast this is all happening. Um, I feel it. I feel there's like some momentum picking up, and it started. It started last year, and it's. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I, th- I don't know if it's just a bunch of new builders coming in, or the technology is mature. I don't. I have no idea, but it is happening. Time is passing. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Well, <laughs> eighteen more months. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So what would you say to people who think you're dancing with the devil with all these terrible merchants who have historically uh, taken our data, mishandled it, um, and like interacting with that uh, that beast? and still trying to like maintain the, the cypherpunk ethos. How do you, how do you bounce that out? It's a good question. Everyone on the team at fold struggles with this and, and, and considers it a challenge to like bring to the product roadmap to bring to, you know, when we look at what are we going to build? This is, this is the tension that is constantly there. You know, there are easy ways to do what we're doing that don't have any of these other parts that to fold. And it's frankly easier to build those things. Um, but this, the, the way that we take it is that um, we almost use the can't be evil scenario. Build it in a way that incentivizes both parties to use the product right now in the state that they are now, not with a bunch of education, but use it right now. 
but from the ground up, it's built in a way that there are, it is fundamentally changing how payments and rewards happen. You know, fold is a weird, it's a weird thing because it's a payment gateway that's whose business model is not based on charging fees and it's a rewards platform that's not based on selling user data, which are fundamentally and historically the business models of both of those, um, of, of, of those, uh, verticals yeah of those verticals and so the idea is to change it from within without sacrificing um the incentives for users and merchants to use it today yeah no because it does make sense in the long run that this data does become a burden on these merchants and chargebacks in particular are, are really what draws me to the quote-unquote mer- merchant adoption meme right like that should be the number one selling point to them like you're not going to get charged back and I think uh, if more and more are going to, I mean, this is, this debate's been going on for fucking half a decade now too, right? It is. So merchant is, adoption, merchant adoption. In circles. And you know, it's, it's historically, you know, it's a funny thing because um, the merchant adoption question historically is, you know, was largely seeded to at the, you know, at the, the hard fork and the, the, the block size wars were, was largely seeded as like a, you know, a, a, a B casher goal. And it actually was. They they were trying to sacrifice everything good about it to solve this weird adoption issue that they had, and sacrifice everything good that had been built for this strange use case. Yeah. And so now with Lightning, we finally have the ability to be like, actually, we're going to take that territory back. You clearly have not done anything good with it, um, and the technology is at a place where we can completely fulfill all of those goals. And so, it's. I think it's at a point where it is a positive thing to come and it's a reason why it's coming back into the picture now. And this is not just about people accepting, you know, accepting, uh, getting into retailers that we know retailers, proton mail just came out saying that they're actually hodling all the Bitcoin. I saw that. So boss, you see, um, uh, Pornhub getting kicked off of PayPal. Um, you saw um, in the past things like Ease. You see, you saw the the, the uh, CE former founder of PayPal get axed from Bank of yes, America. Yes, in the great irony after that. Yeah. And so you, all of these things. First, they came for the ex-founder of, of PayPal, <laughs> and I said nothing. What? Wait, they started there. This that needs to be memed. This is in the house of memes here. <laughs> that, that that could work. Um, and so, yeah, we, we're starting to see all these different ways that merchants can interact with it, whether that's, you know, hodling it for private, using it for privacy means, using it for censorship resistant means, using it because they feel it's an asset that's going to appreciate, it's going to help their bottom line, or in, in our case, streamline and make more efficient payments. And so it's, it's something that I don't think, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who have made their career on, on saying, you know, Bitcoin is not for payments. And I think now that's starting to seem a little anachronistic. It's like we actually can do both right now. Yeah. Bitcoin is large enough to accomplish that. Yeah. Do you ever wear your too early though? Is that always? This is and this is you know being in this space in general is is, is you have to always think that way. And so the reason I'm even working on this is you know I think primarily out of the white paper and in the you know after mining the first Genesis block, the use case of hodling was pretty much supported in an incredible way, ascend and receive and hodl. And so that technology was almost right out of the gate, just great for a use case of store of value and, and um, the, the accumulation uh, uh, use case of Bitcoin. And I think that makes sense. 
the 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 idea of it being a medium of exchange the infrastructure for that has never ever been there not even close it's only now that you start to see how it could be there and now we may be early but you if you're not working on it now it will never happen it will always be early i bought a four dollar ad on a beta video game via lightning from somebody who was on the complete opposite side of the earth this morning yeah and and, and we're we're seeing we're, we're seeing that you see some of my favorite new things you have so if we just look at you know what i imagine how bitcoin has started to tap into these what i see as these payment reservoirs that happen in in the you know incumbent world you know we are taking on payments and rewards billions of dollars are locked up in in rewards if every if every person who earned rewards in the us last year got bitcoin back instead of their you know points or airline miles 16 million bitcoin would have been distributed <laughs> It's no, it's no joke. This is like, we talk about instant ways to instantly get distributed everywhere. Like that's one of them, but there are a lot of others. There's uh, Stackwork is working on essentially a mechanical Turk for um, using lightning for uh, payout in Bitcoin. <laughs> Excuse me. And you think about, you know, it as a global use case, you know, it's a couple Satoshis, hundred Satoshis is one thing here. But it's 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 good money in different parts of the world, and so you start to see how its use as a payment uh, rail is 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 both a way to explore a new use case, but it's also about um, distributing Bitcoin more widely to the rest of the world more efficiently than just locking it up in a kind of speculative use case. And so even if all of these payment you know use cases end up with people as hodlers at the end of the day, we're happy with that. That's fine. Yeah, no, I think a good example of uh, this is the UTXO consolidation we saw over the weekend. Uh, Sergey from BitRefill, I think, pointed Shout out, out Sergey. Yeah. that um, that Binance, they seem to have consolidated the dust, dust outputs in their Tether wallet. So apparently uh, Tether, every time Tether is burned or something, it creates a Bitcoin UTXO of 564 sats which is about like four and a half cents right now. I checked this morning or whatever the price It's four and a half cents according to whatever the price was this morning. Um, but I was thinking like, shit, man, like I, if that was on chain, like one UTXO, you're never going to send that. So that's what they did. They consolidated millions of them in, into bigger UTXOs, but I've received less than 500 Satoshi payments on the Lightning network many times yeah. like, without a problem. I, it, it is, it has loosened up people's relationship in in a certain way you know there's obviously the hoarding element will always be there you know everyone on on the fold team is is a hodler like we're not spending down our bitcoin but our but a lot of us are spending our bitcoin or spending bitcoin that we get specifically to to fulfill that that given transaction and so what we've seen is that lightning first with this idea of you know couple sats sending here here has just loosened people's relationship to bitcoin overall in a way that makes it flow far more freely than it ever has before and that alone changes a lot in in terms of people's relationship to it yeah now it's crazy running right uh like the merch store it's sort of becoming a way too, just via accepting lightning where people are buying merch via lightning but I've come to realize, so the way we've hooked it up with our Shopify is we've had to do a workaround, shout out DJ Seeds for putting this together, uh, via BTC Pay Server, where um, 
users can buy merch using Bitcoin via BTC pay server, but then I have to manually go uh, mark the, the item as paid on the back end on Shopify. Mm, yeah. But then it takes that from my business account. And like thinking about this, a lot of people are buying using Lightning. But for me as a business owner, if I just add Bitcoin, uh, like receiving Bitcoin via Lightning as a functionality, that's actually a way to get exposure to Bitcoin. Like I'm buying Bitcoin at a discount basically because they're buying merch and I'm getting, uh, um, and my business account is just getting charged like the raw cost for that. And I'm yep. getting the, the profit on top of that bought in Bitcoin right away yep. and sent right to my custody. I mean, this is what, you know, so one of the issues that we always had and always a legitimate criticism about, you know, fold in the past is that we were a, essentially an off ramp, right? Selling Bitcoin to get prepaid access. And so the, one of the great things of introducing rewards to this is that now we're, we are almost hodling a hundred percent of what we bring in as Bitcoin payments because we're paying those out as rewards. Uh, to to users using fiat and and their Bitcoin, and so we're creating this closed loop system now where it's not being offloaded and sold um, in the way that it we had to in the past just to keep the lights on. We're keeping it internal and rerouting it as rewards, which is um, also creates you know a whole new relationship for at least us as a business, and you know keeps that you know buy pressure right. So, how do you go building about? How do you go? building about how do you go about building i've got a lot of spoonisms and <laughs> word mix-ups today how do you go about building this app uh while lightning itself is being built out like building on top of something that's not not finished yet it's it's a um it's a great question you know a lot of times we get people asking oh so you know btc pay servers underneath it right and it's not fold is built out a hundred percent everything under the hood and it's not because we don't want to use BTC, BTC Pay Server. We love BTC Pay Server. We think it's one of the most exciting projects in the space. Um, it's because we need to be on the ground looking at how Lightning is developing as a technology, and we need to see that forward. We're basing a lot of our business on the growth of Lightning happening, and if we don't have that on the ground look at how it's progressing, the challenges that it's being that are facing it, the limitations, the you know, some key benefits that can be, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, got from it. Like we lose out on a huge opportunity and puts us at a disadvantage. And so we build out everything. We're managing our own nodes. We're, you know, doing things right. Then we're doing things wrong. Then we learn how to fix it. And constantly the greatest part about the lightning community right now is that it is so, um, geared towards, um, improving this and sharing information that, you know, people that would, you know, consider we'd be competitors to, we're freely sharing information about, you know, how to improve our stack, how to improve our lightning. Like 10% of um, every Fold's uh, employees' time is to contributing open source to lightning, whether that is, you know, tooling to manage your node better, educational materials, um, you know, things like this that, that that is all in spirit of, you know, we're doing this as a, as a community. And so it is definitely not without its challenges and we we see those firsthand and that's kind of the point of why we build out everything so how has uh the network changed as you've been building on it has it gotten better worse things that uh you want things that you need things that you wish weren't there so i would say when we first there was a huge controversy that happened when we launched uh lightning pizza because there's a stat that we said saying like 
you know, f- you know, 50% of transactions didn't go through or something like that. And that was the, you know, there were certain other communities who loved that stat and jumped on it as reason why lightning could never work. Um, and actually it, it was not, it was kind of our fault because we didn't actually position that stat right. It was also the fact of onboarding into lightning wallets was also the issue. And so for us, we have seen huge leaps of improvement in, um, user experience of wallets themselves. So onboarding is getting better and better. You're starting to see, you know, at that, at that time, the only viable wallet to get someone casually onto lightning to try lightning pizza was blue wallet at the time. That was something you could spin up really quickly, get it done. It's custodial. You know, there's all, you know, all these other criticisms of it, but it was definitely the easiest way to get started. It works. It works. Not going to lie. I've used blue wallet this morning. We, we had so many people, we were doing a, we were, you know, we'd have people come out saying, oh, you know, people who've been in Bitcoin for a long time, you know, always non-custodial, they would say, okay, like, actually, how should I, how do I get, how do I get Lightning Pizza? We're like, okay, well, here are your options and wallets. And they'd always come back and say, you know what, I use Blue Wallet and I really liked it. <laughs> and they wouldn't admit that in public. And there's, you know, there's a reason because, you know. I did a demo. Matt yelled at me because I did a demo on my phone just to show how the, uh, the dime bag worked. Um, cause I was pushing lightning network microtransactions and I used blue wallet. I got some shit from people. I was like, fuck it. It works. I only have $10 on there. Get off my back. Yeah. We're, I mean, I, I think there's a, uh, custodial solutions provided. A- Let me be clear. I use other non-custodial wallets as well. And many, many wallets. I jumped from wallet to wallet. <laughs> I just happened to hit the blue wallet that time. That That's a good caveat, Marty. Save, save your DMS. <laughs> um, you know, there's a immediate, uh, uh, bringing a custodial wallet to market is much easier to do in a user-friendly way, much faster to do. Non-custodial has a longer time horizon, and it's catching up already, and we're already seeing it there. And so, you know, if you ask, like, what do we need from the Lightning Network? What do we want? And one of them was just wallets to to improve their UX. And I would say right now, I've kind of changing from improving the UX because I think there's a lot of really good solutions that need six months, a year, and then they'll be really good. But the thing that we're seeing now is uh, channel management and liquidity is the big problem. We frequently have users from many different of the wallets that we all know saying, I can't route a payment to Folds because we've exhausted all of the payments to our, to our side of the channel. The people from those wallets have just spent it all our way because we're one way right now. And the wallets are still learning on how to spin up new channels with more capacity, with more um, for the ability to route higher payments. Like $25 through Fold, nearly 100% of the time. $200, $400 payments through Fold takes, you know, sometimes we can run into issues there. But that has, you know, that's coming from a time where we were excited about a $25 payment in February with Lightning Pizza. And now we're regularly transacting $200, $250 every day. Yeah, it's 8x improvement there. Oh, yeah, of course. And it's, you know, and part of that is that there's a ceiling. Like the develop, like Lightning developers are purposely keeping that limit low for good reason right now. Um, we don't need to be too reckless. So uh, I, I think most of the things and most of the criticisms that I see are, it's, it's one of those things that it's just like, yes, I see it. You're right. But just wait a little bit and it will be there. I mean, it, like Bitcoin and Lightning, both of them, 
more Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin in the eyes of the mainstream and then Lightning Network in the eyes of uh, the people closer uh, in Bitcoin and in the space. This shit is not going to happen like out of the box overnight. Like nothing. Rome wasn't built in a day. That's yeah. like hilarious. That people are like, oh, this thing sucks. It's like it's fucking. Yeah, I mean, and almost right. two years old. And I think like I, I'm I'm one of those people who believe that the majority of onboarding is going to be layer two, and it's going to be rare for people to hit layer one. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> Why do you believe this? Um, there is a level of an expectation of what um, uh, products can do. There's no there's no doubt that you know when we release things, our product is not judged in the realm of of the world of Bitcoin. It's judged in the world of as it is with everything else and every other available option with all of their trade-offs and all of our trade-offs it's judged in that greater sphere and lightning is the only chance that we can have a user experience that even comes close to what can be offered with cheaper options that sacrifice a lot more but in the moment may make it seem like a good trade-off even though you're sacrificing more than you know lightning is the only way it's going to get to a user experience um, that that is going to be expected by a bunch of people. Now, we'll see if the use case, you know, if, if Bitcoin just becomes a safe haven for, you know, rogue states, then maybe we don't need to care about Lightning too much. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, rogue states will definitely use Bitcoin, but I think others will too. I, I think it's I know a I certainly tent. want to use it. I, we, we know for a fact people want to use it. The just adding uh, fiat alone has grown our Lightning transactions from people moving to there to Lightning to just raising the awareness people are saying oh what is the very fact that we are offering in our app a way for you to use it and just having it's it's like the cash app um effect millions of people are using cash app and there's just this bitcoin symbol ever present in front <laughs> of you boss you it's 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 one it's and not only that in their metadata it talks about bitcoin on the app store and it's one of those things that is just it's like it's the next level Bitcoin sign guy. It's, it's shout out BSG. Shout out BSG. Just had a great couple of days with him out in Berlin at the lightning conference. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that is, is, um, starts to raise awareness and starts to even put it as a potential option in front of people that would have never thought about it or, or even looked at it before. And so that's kind of what fold is trying to do. We see ourselves, we want to see ourselves as not just a Bitcoin company, but just a straight up consumer retail spending option that is going to just pump Bitcoin into your life in ways that are unexpected. Yeah. And with Lightning in particular, I've been, I don't want to say apprehensive, but or skeptical. I've been, eh, okay, I've been a little apprehensive and a little skeptical, or I was at least, um, just because it's like, all right, this is brand new. It's like a huge endeavor and you don't know you're literally holding your breath until you see people adopting it and using it. And I think, uh, I'm becoming less and less apprehensive and skeptical, particularly more recently because you see, uh, dev tooling come out. So you saw like Jamal James, uh, who did the, the lightning residency at yeah. chain code over the summer, create polar, which is a, a tool that devs Badass. can use to create reg test lightning setup. So it seems from an outsider's perspective, outsider to the developer community's perspective, looking in, it seems that developers in particular are interested in using this to build and are actually building tools to make it easier to build on, which is a good sign. And it's what you want to see. Yeah. I, I, that's so important. And you know what, to be honest, like it's going to be layer two. Our bet is lightning. 
and lightning is what we have now and it's working and progressing the exact beyond our expectations but it may be something else in the future it, it very well could be and we're here to to follow that trail wherever it goes in service of building upon the base protocol and increasing adoption like we're, we're there on that path but you know with lightning it's funny to see right now people are even saying okay you have a bunch of devs on the you know on the payments use case of lightning i want to make a lightning messaging app and you start to see this it's like that's also a good sign when it starts to diversify on top of the protocol the various different uses and it's it's people are finding opportunity beyond what it's maybe core use was promoted as and starting to see all these varied different things that it could also be yeah no what's that shout out what's that um like it would be crazy uh if you could build like an alipay or wechat uh that's completely distributed and you own your own data and you have a quasi passport and your lightning node and it's 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 the dream and i don't think it's that far off i mean it's it is what do you think it's imperative i think i think it's imperative i think if you're in this space and you are not building for those use cases i think you're missing the point of what we're here for well, i think this is an interesting segue into how you got into this and your story um about hearing bitcoin at a uh a town hall meeting or uh yeah this is um uh, so I, I look back and I had basically like three seminal moments with Bitcoin before I ever even really dove down the rabbit hole. And one of those, um, so Marty mentioned, I, I grew up in, um, uh, Northern California wine country. And one of the things I was working on, uh, was services for migrant workers coming through, you know, uh, it's kind of a shadow population that comes through. Uh, several thousand each year they come and go and so really no not there's no infrastructure built and so the idea was okay how do we support this population that essentially uh, supports the prosperity of this town year long and they're only here for a couple weeks um, and so we talked about we got brought housing legal representation medical um, and one guy was coming out there and saying uh, giving workshops on uh, alternatives for remittances uh, to send money back home. And the reason why is because a lot of these guys would either take a 20, 15 to 20% hit sending remittances back home, you know, on a Western Union or whatever. Um, but also some of them would bring it with them, which would cause personal danger and harm with them as they follow the harvest going up the Western seaboard. And so this was brought very early on. I can't even remember the exact wallet that he was even promoting at the time because it was so primitive. Who was promoting it? It was a guy from uh, UC Berkeley, I believe, and he just came out there. The whole thing was that this was citizens coming together to provide services and connect them. So it was like, are you a lawyer? Okay, great, come help out. Are you a, you know, you a doctor? Okay, you can give a you know, on-the-spot clinic. You, know, you have land? Okay, we can, we can put some temporary housing on there for every year. And uh, that was kind of just one. You know, it was something that passed my mind. There was a lot of problems, and so this was like one really interesting one that you know, didn't didn't strike me at the moment that I would be, you know, lead me to here in this day, but, um, it was an early one, you know, but I think, you know, two others, I had one, I was living in Argentina, uh, and, um, the house I was in a, was, they had a big family party and one of the cousins was there and he was a big security researcher dev developer down there. And he was telling me all about this thing called Bitcoin. And, um, he was saying how he was, you know, it's the future, it's money. And his, his family was laughing him off and everything. And 
Argentina went through a couple defaults since then. The guy used it legitimately as a safe Hazen asset and came out on not only on top, but very good. Stronger. But like Citadel in Argentina. Boss. <laughs> and was able to completely demonstrate the narrative uh, an, the, a, an incredible use case of, of what it could be of exiting an economy in turmoil at a, at a time told you fuckers as soon as they printed those hundred year bonds i was out of here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's like these use cases are just hitting me these like very pure demonstrations of what it could be are just like hitting me directly in the face though a later one was um uh occupy wall street i was i was um i was uh uh, involved in that in in Oakland for a little bit, and we were taking donations and paying out vendors with with Bitcoin. And you know, it wasn't a lot of Bitcoin coming through, but this was the, one of the first times that anyone saw, you know, Bitcoin signs and QR codes and and like ha- and onboarding people who had no idea what it was to just you know custody it and how would that work with a bunch of people who needed access to it to pay out different people, and again, censorship resistant payments like these like beautiful kernels of what this technology could be and that would ultimately go through all these all these different narrative changes but it was just one of those things that was just so very clear um and uh provided like a in in aggregate like oh damn this is this this is something i need to pay attention to and how did you end up like all right fold is the way that i'm gonna pay attention to it like what uh Good question. Like, my background is, um, you know, I've uh, entrepreneur building companies primarily in payments, mm-hmm. consumer and retail, um, uh, and in one of those uh, gigs, I was uh, working alongside on a project for Google with Matt Luongo, who is um, uh, 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 founder of Fold and uh, now of, uh, works uh, is, uh, lead of Thesis, uh, founder of Thesis. Um, doing a lot of crazy work over there too and we were just working together and we were sharing ideas um, and it just was a fit it was one of those times when on-chain bitcoin just wasn't seeming like it was going to actually happen and we knew layer two was coming and once we saw the inklings of that we're like let's 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 kick this let's let's get this thing going now is the now is the time to start this thing again this use case again is here and we have a good shot at it so we we partnered up and got to work was this like were you at a point in your life where like all right i need to give up what i'm working on now and i want to focus on this was the most exciting important thing i could think of working on you know i before that you know working on you know what other people consider is super exciting things like you know you know autonomous and like all of like in hindsight this is this is by far the most important thing that I could consider myself working on right now, where this experiment goes, who, who knows, but, um, I would absolutely not trade it for any other life path that, that had presented itself to me. Yeah. I feel very strongly the same way, but interesting that you said that you guys saw that layer two was coming and that you decided to hop on that opportunity. Cause I was having a conversation last night, uh, at a bar here in Brooklyn, uh, with a fellow freak, and I've been thinking about this for a while. Like, do you think there's like an order of operations through which these networks can become successful? Yes. Is there like a PEMDAS for a successful distributed <laughs> peer-to-peer, uh, uh, trans- or peer-to-peer digital cash system? 
I honestly have never heard the PEMDAS analogy, and well, it's perfect. Right? It's perfect. I, I've been thinking about this for a bit. <laughs> like, I, like, I'm thinking about writing something long form about it. Like, yeah. is there a PEMDAS for this stuff? I, I, I think we have been experiencing the PEMDAS in, in real time and excruciatingly painful. We were going like pa demos for a while and then we 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 re you know restructured some people went on the fork of potamos and they're doing their thing now i'm not sure what what's happening with them but like it is a hundred percent by trial and error figuring out how to build a system from the ground up again and it and it seems that there is an order of operations that you can only unlock you can see the next level like, it's not like everyone couldn't see, oh, instant payments would be incredible, censorship-resistant payments around the world. Everyone could see that, that that was great. Some people leapfrogged just to go right to that, tried to go right to that. We know, how, we, know, we, know what hap- we know what's happening with all of that. And so, you know, it's, it's not about being able to see it, but you, you literally have to live through it and build it. It's, it's, it's like how blocks are formed. The sediment just needs to build at a certain point where the next layer can be viable at a certain point, even yeah. if you can articulate it in the, in the present. Yeah. It's like an expanding universe revealing itself. Yeah. No, but I do, I, I do want to expand on that PEMDOT. Like I think that's where I think a lot of the confusion in the altcoin world is, is they don't understand the order of operations that may exist um, for these systems to be sufficiently and uh, distributed. Right. I think, um, I think, Bitcoin community needs this. I think perhaps the rest of the crypto world needs that even more, that perspective, because I think that's a fundamental. I've, I've never heard that way of putting it. Um, I think it's awesome. I would love to see a paper on that. All right. I only Get ever to read. work. All right. Maybe there'll be a bent tomorrow. I'll write about it. Um, no, let's, let's brainstorm on that. Um, because no, it is, I think, uh, for... Um, creating mental models of this stuff. I think I don't, it just, it just seems natural. Again, like Zabo talks about the progression from collectible to store value, mm-hmm. exchange, unit of account. You can extrapolate that to, uh, you can only have a DeFi enabled future. If the base layer is sufficiently distributed to such a point where your average Joe can download a full node and verify his transactions. Yeah. I mean, we like, you just, you look at the, you look at the, you know, history of currency that, you know, he laid out and others have in the past. It's about creating the, it's, you can't skip the steps, right? You have to go through the steps. It had to be at the beginning that Bitcoin was this weird ass collectible trading card being traded on a, you know, um, uh, you know, a Mount Gox style thing that's used to be trading, trading cards and things like that. Like it had to go through a collectible phase and evolve. And now, right now and go back to the UTXO consolidation. Like exactly. that's what I wrote about today. Like we're 11 years in and the quote unquote people with asymmetric in, uh, information, as opposed to people outside the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency bubble still don't have their shit together. They don't know how to consolidate yep. UTXOs and, uh, interact economically with the blockchain. Like they're still figuring it out. I mean, and it's weird that we, it's like all that we're building essentially is a technology to facilitate that narrative transition and it will change as it goes. Like the only thing that was needed at the beginning was essentially what came out and it was a general widely available at the Genesis block and in order for the, as the narrative changed, the technology had to change with it, but you, you couldn't 
jumpstart the, narr- the, the, the narrative of it and just bring that technology into the present. Like it has to go through these periods. Yeah, it has to have growing pains. You can't have it all. Like it's not going to be a completely saturated, fully liquid, but in, here's stable the, currency. Out here's of where we might, you know, the, the Silicon Valley mindset of just, oh, we can build that right now. Oh, we got it. We got it. And it will happen tomorrow. <laughs> And we'll raise a bunch of money and it'll be real. And then we realize like we work like, you know, 10 years later, like, oh, it wasn't real. Oh, what? Whoops. <laughs> Having worked at a WeWork here in New York City, it was obvious. Like WeWork itself was a, like a VC funded unicorn that was probably bloated. And then at the time I was working for a software company that was great company but not not, not going to be like unicorn status or anything but like looking around the other companies on our floor it was like ah they were like groupon knockoffs and groupon was already a vc funded asshole company and the the we work saga uh, was personified in in the uh the companies that that roamed its floors at least in the office that 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 i was in maybe i got a bad a bad, a bad crop of companies at the uh, Fifth Ave. We work here in New York City, but I, I, you know, it's. I think the history is going to be defined by. There actually was only a couple good ones, and we, you know, free money everywhere, easy money allowed a lot of ideas that maybe shouldn't have existed to flourish for a while, and you know we're gonna. I think history is going to be pretty brutal on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So you haven't. What's made you this way? You've been you were traveling with your dad in Asia, selling wine growing up. Uh, you were at these these meetings trying to figure out how to help migrant workers. What what drives your your passion for this this technology in particular? Like uh, from your past, like it seems like you're a good dude who just wants to get back to his community. I think that's what I like. Uh, you know, we we known each other for a little bit, Marty. This has been a long time in the making, but I. I, I buy into your reading right there. I think a lot of it is that Bitcoin provides a, a level of, brings a level of truth to interactions and in life that is obfuscated in just about every other, um, you know, what we consider technology or where the future is and things. It's, it's a lot of that is just like smoke and mirrors and you can feel it. And especially working in Silicon Valley, you see it. You don't just feel it, you see it. And so when a technology comes along that just cuts right to the core of it and presents this extremely transparent way of going about life and relating to people that can be audited by anybody and freely engaged with anybody else, like the smoke and mirrors, like, in fact, there is no smoke. Like it's with such a, such an incredible counterpoint to crypto overall is like there is a very clear smoke and mirrors and then this kernel of brutal honesty in the center which i consider that's the bitcoin world yeah so what what did you see uh in in silicon valley what was your experience like did you see the monotonous rot of feeding the machine or i mean again not to ask a leading question you just (laughs) i would say you it, it becomes abundantly clear you spend a couple years living in San Francisco and a city that I grew up absolutely in awe of, of its beauty, its history. Um, you know, I, st- I was before this stuff, I was a, 
rhetoric history major studying like how societies transform themselves by like moving to new frontiers and things like that and san francisco is a pretty crazy use case of that and you get there and you start to see it and there's definitely a sense that um things have gone awry or there's a there's some specter that is that is that is fueling this in, in just these odd ways. And so you, you start to see that very quickly. You start to see that affect the people there, the discourse, the conversations, the friends. And it, it you know, for someone, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area. I got to see it for a, a long time. I grew up in a you know, small town up there that you know, just barely had a, um, you know, a stoplight, really. And then getting to, you know, come into the, you know, the Bay Area and see that and know the history, and you, it, it becomes a, uh, something that reveals itself like you can feel it in the place in like there's something like about a new york what i love so much is nothing can it's very hard to change this spot it has changed a lot but it is seems endless like someone forces like that happened in san francisco can take it over in a matter of years because it's small it is it is essentially a small village and so, you know, th- like forces like a gold rush or a tech boom or can just absolutely change it without, you know, in, in a matter of a decade. It takes things longer here and things change. And so I admire this about this, even though how many people I come here say how much it's changed. Like there's a certain immovability that you feel when you're here um, that uh, just doesn't happen, you know, necessarily in, you know, back home where I'm where I'm from or what I've seen happen so I don't I don't know how that has affected me or how it came to inform it but um it's it's certainly the reality that I've I've witnessed out there yeah no it's it's crazy as an outsider looking in uh San Francisco these days in particular gets a lot of shit and then it's like there's a weird sense that when you fly into San Francisco and you look down you feel like I can change that place (laughs) Like I can like, it is like, I can, I can see it all yeah, out of my, the window of my, you know, airplane. And I like, it's small. It, it, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's there. I can live a good life. I feel I can change that place. You look at New York out there. I was just walking down out of, you know, and I had a shot somewhere in Williamsburg and looked out to the, the skyline of Manhattan out there. And you just feel completely, it's the concrete jungle, baby. You feel inundated by you. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm just going to be living my life here. It's going to affect me. I'm going to have a good life and try to do it. You know, and, you know, I know there's a bunch of, there are certainly forces here that are, are, are not for the positive, but they don't seem um, as pervasive as what can happen and kind of monoculturally can happen in a place like San Francisco. Yeah. I want to bring back the, uh, the San Francisco from film noir. Oh yeah, my favorite. That's uh, very nostalgic. I took like uh, American literature classes in college for a few of my electives. Dove into a lot of film noir, especially in the film classes. Obviously, that's a wonderful period of San Francisco. There's so many good ones. I mean, right. Part yeah, part of what I what I studied there was the growth of San Francisco. How that changed. How it changed from this essentially little village on the edge of the Pacific. That was inhabited by at one point ten nations, all saying they laid claim to it, to what really? it is today. I never knew that. Yeah, and part of it was a tech, very, very powerful technology called the goddamn railroad <laughs> that allowed that was essentially used to 
to change the narrative of who owned that, of who controlled culture. And at the end of that railroad, they created universities to, to indoctrinate that idea of who's, you know, that they would say that this railroad is, is an unbroken line between here and ancient Greece directly to uh, uh, San Francisco that will take the, that thread of history. When most people there were, were from Russia, China, um, indigenous populations, Mexico, who had no, I, no, nothing to care about this unbroken line from, you know, from Greece, who are all nation building and world building in their own way. But this technology gave them an unprecedented power to, to, to lay claim to that, that was, that was able to be extremely successful. Yeah. That's why it's like such a shame to see the state today, like the state of San Francisco today, because it's got such a rich history. This, It'll come back. We this will great melting pot. We'll, but like <laughs> I saw a woman tweet, somebody tweeted out a picture of their Tesla being broken into and like, the tweet was, hey, this is the fourth time this has happened in a month. Let's figure this out, San Francisco. And somebody quote tweeted it and was like, maybe you shouldn't be flaunting your richness in front of everybody. It was like, what the fuck? Like, you can't expect common decency of your fellow man not to break into your car. Like, that's... that's what, that is a that is called a, you know, a, a San Francisco, you know, welcome, right? That's how we, that's how we welcome you. Oh, it's happened to me before. Yeah, it, it, my it, first trip, when, my first trip to Sonoma, to Hillsburg. Uh, like five or six years ago, yep. we're, we're actually on our way back. It was Martin Luther King uh, weekend, and it was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and we were in Golden Gate Park. It was, again, a holiday. There were thousands of people. We had our car parked in Golden Gate alongside, like, hundreds of other cars. We're dumb Philadelphians, had no idea of what was going on. We go walk into the, uh, the Japanese Garden, walk, walk through that. Beautiful spot, yeah. Beautiful spot. It's the uh, background of my phone still. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we got our shit ganked. Yep. Window broke, took all of our bags. Maybe we were done getting all of our bags in there, um, but it happened. That, that was, you know, I, I lived in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, which I don't know if you know that's like. <laughs> yeah, I've been there before. Yeah. Um, so some people come to visit. I, I was living there for a while, um, and that was. And the funny thing about San Francisco, what if, if anything, if the tourism board of San Francisco could change one thing, it was it would be to not make all of the hotels essentially in the tenderloin so that you're basically having all these visitors come through and that's what they see. <laughs> that's well, this year when we went to Sonoma before Bitcoin 2019, we stayed in the tenderloin and my wife's first visit to San Francisco and she was not happy. We got out of our cabin. There's literally some dude masturbating right outside the hotel. That's, you know, we had, I had neighbors and, and, uh, uh, outside neighbors that would, you know, that'd be common, but, you know, let's 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 vote for a couple more hotels, more equally distributed throughout the, the city to give a. Why don't they want the billboard? I think that's the problem, right? It's, well, would you? So here, that's a good question. So you can. It's it's a weird thing, right? A lot of people liken, not liken, but there are some similarities between um, uh, building uh, uh, real estate and real block size, right? And there are arguments like, okay, why would I want to increase my, uh, why would I want to allow someone else to increase the utility of my area around me? If that's, if I live in such a scarce asset, why would I want to allow that? If that's going to depress any kind of, uh, you know, price chance of my home going up, I can, if I more, the more scarce my, my land is, the more it's going to go, number is going to go up. 
And so the, you know, the, the scarcity thing is, These bitches is, don't understand marginal utility. There you go. Let's go. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So we need to bring that, these, these things that we have learned into the space, into San Francisco politics, but it may be too far gone anyway for that. But, um, yeah, they just elected some zealot, right? Uh, who is for DA? Who, uh, oh, so this was, um, the guy who came from the weather under his parents were weather underground murdered some. Yeah. I think they were behind one of the bombings. Yes. I don't know. Unfortunately, because I actually lived in San Francisco for a couple of years, I find my home and I call, uh, where I live in the Bay is Oakland, which has a whole different world. Congrats. Good, good for you. Yes. So I, you know, I was, I was a trans transitory figure in San Francisco, but, um, yes, I think that did just happen. I don't know his politics too much, but, um, I've definitely heard some things. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's apparently been groomed by some left-wing extremists. Yeah. And it's not my city. It's not my city. Not your, you know, not my city either, except they won't stop calling me to vote on these ballots. So (laughs) maybe I should answer these and say, Okay, give me a ballot, I'll vote. Well, that was another thing. Apparently, like, the voter turnout was pretty abysmal for this shit, too. Yeah, and, you know, the way, you know, it's, it's stack rank and things like that. So that just the, we talk about governance and how governance is supposed to work. And, like, the technology of governance produces the governing body, you know? Like, how, how people vote and the rules around who is elected produce the certain people who get into these offices. And create the incentive system through which people try to exploit. Right? Exactly, and so... Yeah. We're seeing these in real time, an experiment there in a place that historically has had, you know, pretty much no, 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 um, balance of another, there's no other party in San Francisco, right? There's just, there's just, you know, uh, you know, left leaning and like left extreme. And so we get to see what that, what happens there really. Yeah. As a lifelong Californian, do you think California breaks up secedes? It was interesting when Draper Draper submitted that proposal for it. He says to this day that it would have passed for sure. Um, But, you know, I I know like up closer to where I live, there's the whole Jefferson State movement. And that's like, what's that? It's a it's a um, movement to break up California, basically everywhere. um, Sacramento and north, essentially, um, and southern Oregon and a little of Idaho, I believe, or something like that. Uh, would break off into its own state because the interests are so misaligned um, with the rest of California and the the power bases just basically mean they're unrepresented up there. Yeah, they're beholden to L.A. and San Francisco. Francisco, Yeah, Yeah. so you see this, you know, you'll get up on, you'll be driving up the 101, you pass, um, uh, you know, Sonoma County, and then basically after that is when you start to get into you have entered Jefferson State, state of Jefferson. Um, you'll see the propaganda everywhere. You know, it's it's one of those things that goes in and out of being, you know, a, a serious movement to just the relics of the propaganda are there. But then it will it, it constantly is coming in and out and being a thing. And so I think I think in general the if it's not going to happen, then California will have had to have found a way to govern more locally. Um, which is hard to hard to imagine that outcome happening at the moment. Um, it seems like you were trying to get involved with that. Well, that's that's yeah. There's plenty of there's plenty of people doing that. Well, it's 
It's also crazy. Most people, especially us dumb Americans, don't realize that California is bigger than like Canada, yeah. a bunch of other countries. Like people don't realize how fucking big California it's, it's is. E- exactly, and you you definitely feel that. Like that's what I'm kind of talking about. Like you know, you can feel like you can change. You feel like you could change San Francisco, but coming to New York, you feel like you're gonna be the ones who's gonna be more changed. You know, you look at California as a whole, and you're like, oh my god, how you know that that almost seems out of reach as well, and so. I do think there will, there has to be a shakeup. There has to be something because interests are increasingly being misaligned. Uh, um, uh, focus is being att- uh, paid to a, a smaller, smaller aggregate of people, and like you just see it in all different styles. That's why like the water situation in California is so terrible. Like, and all of these pieces of California politics are are show this what happens when it becomes misaligned with the general electorate well is california just a little microcosm of what's going on in the world right now we got hong kong chile bolivia uh venezuela lebanon iran iraq there's there's, people are pissed off right now man. people are people are a little hot tempered and and showing i i agree I, i but i would say so people are saying like oh right now is different but I would like it has been like this for a good decade, and countries have been changing their. The, I mean, the whole Syria debacle. Yeah, country. there's like it's not. This is not a new thing, as in the last year or two. This is a a musical chairs of rebellion. But happening. do you agree that the music's coming to a bit of a crescendo right it now? It is. Well, it's. I think it's coming to a crescendo because it's hitting centers of power that have historically not been hit, like the Hong Kong, uh, China thing is is. Um, absolutely a moment where, okay. The world's watching. The world's watching. And not only that, is that this, it is at an unprecedented power who's already demonstrated that they don't necessarily deal with problems in the way that other countries do. They do do not give a fuck. Yeah. And so I think we'll, we'll see how that ends up. I I wish, um, uh, health and safety to those doing good work out there. Uh, but I, 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 I agree. It's only ramping up. Yeah. No, I wish health and safety to those as well, but I am very worried for your health and safety. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't mean to even do the thoughts and prayers kind of thing. Yeah. No, so that's why, you know, you start to see, you know, go, taking this back to Bitcoin, like people setting up. I think it was Matt starting to like send out uh, sats over to, you know, creating campaigns to send sats back to the Hong Kong protesters. And like, let's, there are certain moments where this, like, this can be demonstrated. The Hong Kong protesters, HSBC was canceling bank accounts for them. Yep. <laughs> and so if I love their Mexican drug lords, but if you're trying to protest the, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, the communist party of China, you're, uh, you're fucked. And we see, you know, finance, like I was, uh, driving, um, I was back to my trip in Thailand. I was going down the Mekong Delta, uh, Mekong river. And they were pointing out, you know, Hey, look at this, look at this amazing bridge that's being built. It's got a railway directly from Beijing to Bangkok. And they're like, the Chinese are, are building it. And we're like, oh, okay, that, you know, connecting the, the region, okay, cool. Um, and they say, well, actually not, not, not cool. Um, they, they come in and they bribe officials to essentially approve plans for incredibly large infrastructure projects. And they have terms where if you don't pay this back in a certain amount of time, 
this is effectively our sovereign zone. Oh, China's doing this. Yes. And they're, so they're doing this in Africa as well. And they just see, and they're not, they didn't seize, but this is What's in it real called? time happening in Kenya at the largest port in Kenya, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Alex Gladstein's all over this. Yes. Like, and uh, so this is, this it's is like a $4 trillion initiative or something yes. like so that. So this is directly out of the playbook and it is, Honestly, genius playbook. It's like if you... Uh, if you've ever read uh, Life of an Economic Hitman, that's what you do. You make them dependent. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think if there's any time for a counterbalance of, you know, this idea of um, uh, massive uh, credit and massive expenditures of money that can dwarf any uh, um, logical agreements or... Um, uh, can easily um, take over the, you know, basically bribe of your governing bodies that are so overwhelming in the terms of how much money is is on the table. That there's a counterbalance in power that is almost un, that is unbelievable and that has almost an ine- inevitable outcome. And so you start to see how a a counterbalance of a different type of of money to uh, sovereign money for this to happen is is more important than ever. Now, will that be Bitcoin? I don't know. I hope it will, but like there needs to be like at a, at a base layer of the currency needs to be something to fight against this because at the end of the day, the money creation is happening at only a few locuses around the world. And that gives incredible leverage against everybody. It gives the most amount of leverage that anybody can have against anybody else. Right. Because that is the most important tool is money. It, is there to communicate uh, value transfer between disparate goods, and now it is. Why I'm why I'm very optimistic because it does feel like we are. It can't get that much worse. Like it's literally, yeah. it's literally. You have to be optimistic because it's. You just literally end up in 1984, full on right. Chinese surveillance state uh, exported to the rest of the world, and that just doesn't seem tenable. Like. Uh, I mean, doesn't seem good. Doesn't seem tenable, but then you have like 1.5 billion people in China living under this regime. Yeah, but in a lot, of, you know, even the, it's it's not like or two billion. How many people? They're also there? living under this too, and it's like it's not that that this is being exported by the people of no, of but a it's place. The corporations. It's the corporations, and these are technologies that are allowing this to happen. This is this is ideas of of how money works. And how money can be deployed and taking advantage of, of economic climates and other countries that provide on the surface great benefits but come with incredible drawbacks that just can't be known in the moment. Yeah. And that's what's actually interesting to see on the uh the world stage world stage right now, uh, is the battle for five G. And that's the battle for five G, the battle for cooperating on 5G or going our separate routes, mm-hmm. right? And I think I saw something today where it looks like China and the U.S. are dead set on just going their separate ways in this 5G world. And so you could have a bifurcation of the digital world happening here if I mean, you look at if 5G is uh, not turning us all into drones or whatever, right. or giving us all <laughs> cancer. Um, but if it is... If we survive the cancer, then... <laughs> yes, we get over that. And there's a technology worth pursuing. It seems that we might bifurcate into two worlds here. It seems like, I mean, the Silk Road Initiative, or I believe that's what it's called that they have. Yeah, the Silk Road Initiative they have, I, I think, 
um, it's, it's, that's already been presented. There's two world operating systems right now that are being offered. And they're definitely not both wholesome and great for the, the rest of the world. Like, absolutely, and that's not what I'm saying. But this is almost a, a, a point where, you know, interoperability was fine while we we're all figuring it out. You know, we're stealing each other's technologies, you know, figuring it out. But now we figured out how to create these walled gardens that, that are extremely, extremely powerful and can operate at the state level and be exported exponentially. The U.S. has been doing it for a long time. Um, and, the, and China has just developed its own special blend of what that is that seems particularly powerful and, and in contrast to what we've, what we've seen, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's seems like just recently, in the last six months in particular, you have people starting to question, like, why do we have Huawei here giving us our, yeah. our surveillance technology? And that's a, I think that was an article in the New York Times mm-hmm. about the subway system here in New York. They're considering uh, experimenting with Huawei's facial recognition technology. But it's cheaper, Marty. <laughs> it's cheaper? <sighs> so fuck, though. We're all face-fucked. We're face-fucked. <laughs> we are. And that's... Uh, it's weird. It's unfortunate. There's, and there, again, it's like, there's not like, there's nothing we can do there. We are erecting these systems that again, can just flip a switch one day and it can be, Oh, we're catching, we're catching, uh, uh, people that are jumping the fair. And then the next day it's like, Oh, this dude said something on Twitter 30 minutes ago. We saw that he was at the Monroe stop. So we're going to pick him up at 14th street and union square because we don't like what he said yeah like that is that will be possible i think that's why you like when you look at a world where things seem so abstracted away from you but you see the consequences you see where it's going and you seem almost like looking at new york you seem powerless for stopping where it's going that's why like you know you ask what you know how do you find yourself working on the stuff you do that's 100 percent part of it is looking okay i'm gonna contribute time and energy and and, and mental focus to a technology that could potentially change the balance in some way. And again, this is all an experiment. And so if there's an, imagine this world that you see today and this experiment wasn't being run. Which, which experiment, the surveillance state or Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Yeah. Imagine if this, if, if things, if this movement was not, no, it, I know, I can't imagine it. it. It would just be scary. I've been thinking about this too long. I can't imagine <laughs> Please don't take Bitcoin from me, please. <laughs> but with that being said, like, uh, d- do you see people? Again, we we were talking earlier about apathy and stuff like that. But like, is it is it too far gone? Like, uh... I I don't think it's ever too far gone. Or else, if if once I, once you like, if you're building stuff and you're like putting effort. Once you believe that, it, like, it's like, why wake up and do it? And so... Oh, that's actually not the question I wanted to ask. Okay, good. You're saying it's an experiment. When yeah. is it not an experiment? Oh, when is it not an experiment? Yeah. Is, like, some oh, people, when does the experiment become the reality? Yes, that. And some people would argue Bitcoin's not an experiment. It's working as is. It, it, it is. should today. I, I, I completely agree. But I, I think it is... I, I, I still think that to not view it as an experiment and something that needs to continue being worked on is, is, is the wrong way to go. And that's why I think this idea of ossification and all this stuff is a little naive right now. 
I think I want ossification. I don't want ossification right now. I want, I just want ossification in people's minds to be like, hey, this oh, should yeah. be our goal that we should get to. And so here, here, this is, brings me to okay. I'm going to talk about fold right now. A part of the like Trojan horse aspect of fold is to again, I said earlier, is to distribute as much Bitcoin to as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time. The idea of that is both to get ex- people to get exposure to asset and start to learning about it, start start to learn about it. But it's also about building an electorate of people that that have its ideals and vote for and vote for its ideals or ex, 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 exert political power in favor of that. And without things that teach people that, people don't know necessarily how to act. And so um, I think giving someone something and teaching them and them learning to value it over time will be something that people defend. And I think that's when you change apathy from away from just like, I don't know how to fix it to like, okay, here's one small thing I can do. Yeah. And it's like, Hey, I've learned so much about this and know how it's impacted my life that it is imperative that we all learn. Yeah. And and again, like what we just said, okay, imagine your life right now with everything that's going on in the world in this experiment that you and I have been working on for a while doesn't exist. Like Satoshi never happened. What Genesis block never happened, but the world is still wor- working the way it is. We'd be focused on like sofa rates and stuff like that. <laughs> like not even like that's the type of innovation we would be thinking yeah. about. Not even. And so it's 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 imperative for us when we build things to not just slap it on it, but just cultivate this idea, the ideals that are brought from it. Both the stuff given to us from the cypherpunks early on, but also now as a global technology that offers an alternative to what we have and if, if you're not doing that and you're also working in the space then you know i think you could be more effective how can we best uh work to not come off as a cult that's a good question <laughs> does it need to be a cult yeah to, like how to succeed like how cultish should we be is there like there's a there's a scale for everything here so part, maybe maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's just like just on like onboarding enough people that like are kind of on the fringes that it's hard to see the center of the cult. (laughs) Is it like, do we just need people who are willing to take like two ass laps? Like that's it. (laughs) And if that, that's the intensity of the cult that we should be striving for. Like someone said, I've someone, someone, I don't remember who it was, but someone's like, uh, uh, MMT or fiat is the religion. Bitcoin is a cult. I was trying to like, what does that mean? Is that, and I was the way I interpret it is just the cult is a precursor to a religion, right? Interesting. Like they all start that way. And if you look at how those things form, like again, talking about PEMDAS, like maybe the cult is, is the P. part of the order of the operations. <laughs> yeah. Is it a cult? I'm trying to think about like uh, religious inceptions. What is the oldest religion? The oldest religion, um, Zoroastrian exploration. Zoroastrian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think. Let's so that's see, sort of I'm, like pre-Sumerian. Yeah. And that um, was a very mystical religion. I'm going, trying to go back to my Houston to, religions uh, of the world book that I read. <laughs> you go to, um, Gilgamesh, Indian religions. And, um, I mean, you, yeah. I mean, how I'm trying to think of how they start, but you, but here, here's one thing that was interesting. Again, going back to my travels in Asia was, um, you know, uh, Buddhism was started in India. Zoroastrian astrology, not exploration. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, well, 
practicing could be called the exploration aspect of the astrology. Yes, yes. Thank you for saving me. There. But like you go back to um, uh, uh, in in Thailand, you know, Buddhism is is dominant religion. In Asia, it's also uh, massive, but it's all started in India. And it's it's um, in India, you see a lot of Muslim and a lot of um, Hindu, and so you start to see how places where they begin can start to emanate elsewhere around the world via memes because you start to see um in thailand their whole thing is uh every day of the week has a different buddha one buddha is happy and one buddha has a hand that's like stopping you from being bad one is like giving something to you and these are replicated across all of asia are you supposed to exude these values on these days i or you're some people are associated with them i'm again i tried to pay attention and learn as much as i could so they're much people better who could represent them. But you start to look and these same th- images are replicated in other c- countries across, you know, Southeast Asia, um, uh, uh, Japan and, and, and China. But the Buddha just looks maybe different. Maybe it's a little bit more plump versus Thailand. It's much more, uh, it's a thinner Buddha. Some are more feminine, some more masculine. Yes, and these are all just memes that go into their culture solidify in them to like bring what ultimately started in india and that even in india is not as big of a thing as it it's like anime yeah it suggests and so like i think here at at, you know at the bent the origination of stacking sets all of these things this is the work that is needed to be done i cannot take credit for that it's all matthew (laughs) it was not me well this Um, is this is this happens at the um at the Citadel, we call you know, TFTC. <laughs> I'm anti-Citadel. I do not want a future of Citadels. The future of Citadel seems despotic to me. The freak Citadel. <laughs> it does. I agree with that. I'm not. I'm not pro Citadel in that way. I want a future where I could just live in Northern California and live on a vineyard and make dope wine. Have people come on my vineyard and talk about wine. Let's talk about wine. I love that. Do you I, love wine? I I I I love wine. I do um, as well. I don't know. Um, so we had this idea that I was doing before was, um, a wine club based on, uh, insurgent wineries around the world. And so you have, you know, in Lebanon, you have literally you have wineries and that are in, in, in Palestine too, that are in between the actual essentially DMZ zones that are just mm-hmm. the main work is just taking up shells every, you know, like that's part of harvest is like removing like military <laughs> shells and things like that. You have um, in France in the Languedoc region, these guys are blowing up American and Chilean and uh, Australian wine is being imported into France and diluting the 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 French wine mystique. Mm-hmm. So they're going to villages and like blowing up wine <laughs> containers and it's just flowing down like old medieval French villages. Talk about pity. Yeah, or pettiness. Excuse <laughs> yeah. me, pettiness. Yeah, you have uh, uh, wineries in uh, south of the border of Mexico in the. Um, uh, in the valley, in the Guadalupe Valley, right there, that are related to uh, Zapata and the kind of movements across the border, wine is is something that has been tamed so much that I wish that we need more memes and narrative to bring it back to its roots of a uh, of not only just like a base of civilization, but like pretty badass. Right. Well, that's. That's why I like the California wine scene in particular, right? Because they blew up on the scene in the 70s. What was yeah. the Ridge went to the French tasting and won. Yeah, uh, they went there. They had also the French tasting in California, Chateau Montalena, that one. Yes, and I agree that's true. 
Now you'll go look at Napa and it looks like Disneyland, French Disneyland. In, okay, in Robert and Robert Mondavi. Yeah, it just looks strange. It looks strange. So that's why I'm, I'm proud Sonoman on the other side, a little bit more down to earth. Um, uh, but that's changing too. It's like speaking of just massive consolidation, you know, wineries that ha- were run by family friends and families just scooped up by massive distributors that own. Yeah, Copain just bought a. Well, the, yeah, and that's like that's a that's a relatively innocuous version of this. There's, you know, the massive distributors. I won't name them, but that could come in there and just pluck up any old winery they want, change the soul of it, which changes the town and the the area around it. Well, so this is a good microcosm of America right now, right? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. How do you preserve Sonoma's essence without it being bastardized? And it's the same thing for like a, a Bitcoin maximalist who's trying to like run a non-custodial. Like, how do you? Yeah. <laughs> how do you? Always got to bring it back. We'll bring it back. Right, but like, how do you? Pre- like, how do you stay authentic? How do you? So I, I you think keep authenticity. I think it's natural progression is just what time of the era do you live in. And we're seeing this now. One of the coolest things that's happening now is, like right now, to, to spin up a new winery costs millions of dollars. And like if you're, if you're planting, it's at least three years before you're going to see any fruit. At least three years, probably five years. And then you have to wait, put the wine down. So that's another like 24 months or whatever. And so you're talking about millions of dollars outlaying capital to only be able to like harvest years, years later. So, like, for most people that have really badass, cool ideas of what to do with wine, it's completely outside of their ability. And so what you're seeing in, uh, in the wine industry right now, the coolest stuff, is people going around and sourcing amazing uh, grapes, bringing it back, doing interesting things with interesting blends, or just, um, uh, you know, no longer having this estate landed gentry model, unfortunately, because that that's one of the coolest parts about it. Um, and moving towards this, you know, where you see the most innovation is people just finding the right, the right grapes, the right material, bringing it back and, and producing really new, exciting stuff. And then the other part is just outside. There is wine grown in every state in, in, in the U.S. In India produces wine. Like, we're going to see some cool stuff, and it's not going to come from these places that have just, like, solidified into what it is. I don't know, but, like, nobody has the microclimate that Sonoma does, right? Like, well, good, but these these grapes that people get are coming from Sonoma. It's just they don't own the land. Okay. And so they have more ability to experiment and, like, bring a bit more of, like, punk rock vibe back to, back to wine okay. growing. Like, you know, growing up, all the, the people in the wineries, you know, that I knew, and I, that was my first job, I was 16, I started working on the wineries until I was, you know, 20 years old or so. What were you doing? Uh, I, I started out as a ranch hand at first, like digging dishes and, and clearing suckers off the vines, and then, you know, did other things across, but that's where I started. And um, uh, you, these people, like, their stories would be, yeah, I, I you know, I... I, I was working in New York. I had a liquor store that I had and, you know, um, I just decided to head out, head out West. And I just like got this amazing property, like pristine land. And I just made it work. I brought my family there and we just like made this into a reality. It's so, I'm so envious. It's so fucking beautiful out there. It is. Like I can't like living in New York city, being from Philadelphia, I will make my way back to Philadelphia soon, freaks. Don't worry. <laughs> the prodigal son I, I will return. I can't wait for it. But <laughs> like driving, like the drive from San Francisco to Sonoma. 
Oh yeah, it's one of the most seat, especially if you take the back routes. You oh, know, absolutely. Like you cut through Napa and then go to Sonoma through that way. Yep. It's it's fucking immaculate. View wise, I could not agree more. That's like that's just brings back. That's like that's that's childhood there, and so it's it's interesting how it's it's changed, but also well, just as like I hope you know, like outsiders see that it's like oh, holy yeah, shit, yeah. this is paradise. Like it's I mean, you, like there's and that's been the truth. You know, you had. Um, yeah, you know, Jack London, uh, you know, the Call of the Wild rider guy who's living in Oakland. And he, you know, found his, you know, found his wife and he's just like, you know, we're done with this. And he got on like a wagon and just rode up into the hills and found Glen Ellen in Sonoma, like right up kind of where I lived and just found this incredible piece of land, started growing, you know, uh, wine was one of the you know the earlier not the earliest because it was happening with the Spaniards and stuff but um and just was able to create his entire life of his own and separate out there like that's I can't imagine that happening anywhere in California anymore and it's one of those stories that uh, that property was uh, um, then went into disrepair after he died and his whole property you know burned down then you have like utopian communities moving in and like flourishing for 20 years they're hiding gold in the trees and <laughs> You know, they died in the trees. Oh yeah. Like that's, that's how they were like hiding their money. And then the next group would come and they'd find this gold and they would fund like some other, you know, part of their community there. And they were all about, you know, you know, whatever different utopian vision. This is like one of the properties I, you know, grew up working on has a, uh, a Greek Parthenon there and they would just like do stuff there. (laughs) You go go preach to the Delphi, the Oracle Delphi or something like that. And so it was just like this crazy, you know, this, like it used to represent such a freedom of experimentation where you could go out there, you would be an hour north of San Francisco, but you were for all intents and purposes, like experimenting on the other side of the, the world. And, you know, that, that feeling is a hundred percent not there anymore. And it's weird how the world seems so much smaller. Well, that's what I was just about to get into. Like, is there a frontier in America? Is America a great frontier anymore? And then was America the last great frontier? And then let's get cosmic here. Are we going to space next? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, Do we get that fucking board? We're like, fuck, <laughs> we've made some dope wine in, in Northern California. That was the last frontier. You, you might be right about that. That's like, cause I, I do not want to live on Mars. I don't either. I don't. <laughs> I'm not getting on that, on that space. I've asked, down. I've asked my wife. She's like, yeah, not happening yeah i I don't want to go i don't i like i'm i i would be happy like being that the captain on the boat like going down with the ship (laughs) before i would ever like be like that's where my future is yeah i definitely want to go to space like one of the virgin galactic so the branson vision i like you know you go up a little champagne yeah you get a little anti-gravity and then you You get a little existential like (laughs) peek into your soul like oh yeah, you than... have the you have the the I forget what the effect is called. The astronauts come back with saying it blows your mind once you see the pale blue dot from afar. Yeah, the, whole... the scale of it yeah. all. Yeah, the scale of it all. <laughs> the scale of it all. God, what would um fuck? Why am I forgetting his name? Uh, Carl Sagan. Sagan. What would Carl Sagan think of all this shit that's going on right now? So he, I remember I saw some interview with um. Uh, Elon Musk, and he was basically talking about he was he was he was dictating um, something that Carl Sagan said about the pale blue dot, 
And he said, pale and, blue dots when I'm like still chills. It's yeah. You can think about it. And, and Elon is like reciting it. And he then goes and says, in part of the pale blue dot, it says, and this is all we have. And this is all we ever have. And Carl Sagan's point there is like, like we need to work to be able to make this world livable forever. Cause this is all we have. And, Elon was like in character reading it and then he pauses and he says, well, that's actually not true. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes back in, but he was trying to like lay praise on the Sagan and do all this, but he stops to be like his, his Mars promotion. Sagan quick. didn't know <laughs> that my parents were going to fuck and I was going to be born. Yes. Take us to Mars. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, like I, I, I like I, I prescribed the Sagan world vision, like work to make this, place work yeah. for sure just be nice to your fellow human this yeah. is the only thing we got it's crazy like the pale blue blue dot if you freaks are listening to this i've never seen the fucking video go watch it right now it's the most humanizing video if you can live under the assumption that the the earth is round and then the universe is in a a simulation before you go to sleep <laughs> turn the lights off cue up pale blue dot and then you will float into some some heavy some, space. Some heavy space. It's all about perspective, freaks. What are we doing here? <laughs> what are we doing here? What the fuck are we doing here, Will? I don't know. I, I think I need some more mezcal. You do. I mean, we can blame it on that for sure. We're almost two hours in. I'm still having fun. This is a... Uh... Oh, whoa. Heavy pour there. Sorry, honey. I'm coming up hot and horny. I mean, that's what they, so, um, mezcal, one of the things they call, I forget, uh, minute, the, the hour 55, 25. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. What else do we got? Um, and so the mezcal, um, the maguey, what it's made of the, uh, the, the plant was uh, considered like the cosmic plant because it's one of those things that the one thing provided everything that a, a society of people needed. It had food you can eat it you can make um uh materials out of it baskets rope um, tinder. You, you can make you tinder you can make mezcal you can make um absolutely anything fire ev everything with it the mezcal's got your boy feeling real good right now yeah and that's like it's... i think we what what is what happens is it, it shows in the mezcal well let's talk about the history of mezcal you're describing to me before we hit record uh you got a lot of warriors drunk and uh, ready for battle. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Where do you even start with this? So Mezcal, like the, when you talk about the history of Mezcal, you're really just talking about history because it's pretty much always been used for this. And so the, the interesting part is when um, around the Mexican-American War, a little bit before that, you have these families up in Tequila, up in, uh, in Mexico, uh, the Salsa family you may know of, the Cuervo family you might be familiar with, um, uh, essentially all got together. And as the U.S. was building up this massive population of, of people, they realized there was this huge market up there. And so, you know, in, in the Caribbean, people were sending rum out there because there was such a big market for people. You had uh, over in Europe, they were sending gin out. And, and Mexico was like, well, we got tequila. This families could figure out this, like, you know, whole new market to market to. And so they started flooding America with tequila, especially on the frontier. And you'll go to tequila and they'll even tell you right now that the only thing that gave the Americans the cojones to come and take 
the Mexican territories was because they flooded it with tequila and they were all, you know, essentially white boy drunk, you know. And the Alamo, like, fuck this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so it led to this incredible success in some ways and their downfall in others, but they made so much money off of it. They were able to create regulatory capture with the Mexican government and say, we're going to pay you off this money. And what you're going to do is define the only type of uh, alcohol that can be uh, exported from Mexico is going to be called tequila. And it's going to have these characteristics. It's going to be from this place. It's going to look like this. It's going to be made like this. And which essentially outlawed the exportation of all other types of mezcals, tequila being one mezcal. So this is like a quasi-champagne? It's, it's exactly the history of that. Exactly. And this is yeah. the history of alcohol creating these. Some, some countries are better than others about creating these you know, regulatory capture like this. But they're like memes at the end of the day. Oh, they're, it's, it's like you need tequila exactly. from tequila. Yes. You need That's champagne we, from champagne. Or we like, have to call it sparkling wine in, in California if it's not right? from there. Exactly. And so you have all these mezcal farmers who are essentially unable to make it. But the, the, the interesting thing is that because tequila became so industrialized, the, the technology of producing tequila also became... Uh, started to move away from its roots. And so whereas before, all mezcals are normally, the maguey is cut down, they uh, cut it open, they bury it, um, they burn like they, they burn it with coals underneath, that's why you get that smoke in it, um, and then they'll, they'll take it out, and then they'll basically press it, and then um, ferment it. When you have to produce on such a scale, that doesn't work. Like, that proof of work is way too intense. Yeah. So what they it's a did, small batch operation. Small batch operation. So what they did was like, okay, we're going to create massive um, factories that essentially steam the maguey on mass, and so that's why in tequila you don't really taste the smoke on it anywhere. The smoke in this mezcal is fucking incredible. <laughs> it's, it's. I, I like to call it the uh, the scotch of Mexico. It it really does remind me of scotch. Yeah, and and so tequila essentially was like became a bastardized version of itself because of the monopoly that the Salsa and Cuervo families were able to create. And in, in Oaxaca, you have this tradition of small batch producers keeping the tradition alive. And there are hundreds of types yeah. of mezcal. Good for you. Cuervo and, and Suerza. You created some shit brands. <laughs> yeah. Terrible brands. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? You're, you're, you're the bane of every white girl's existence. <laughs> was that what you wanted to be remembered for? Oh God! White. I mean, so like I was, I was down there. I was probably I was down in Oaxaca maybe ten years ago, and um, I was at this place called uh, La Mescaleria, and it's this place in Oaxaca. I don't know if it still exists, but it's this bar that's run by a bunch of a a, a collective of mezcal producers who are basically just trying to keep the art alive, and their whole thing is to map out map out all of the different types of mezcals that are in existence and, and keep the tradition alive against what tequila essentially did to it. And I was in there and uh, next to me at this bar was this, uh, this couple and they happened to be from New York and they had this bar somewhere on Williamsburg. I'm going to track down the name. And they were in there and they were saying, Oh my God, we need to bring, we're going to bring mezcal to the U S and like, we're going to make this like an incredible, um, you know, new hot thing. La Superior. La Superior. And it was... No, that's the restaurant I think you're thinking of. Is it? Or so it's a... Okay. 
and I don't know what it is. Apparently, it was also attached to this place where like bands would come and record, like huge recording studios. Anyway, this is all. I'll give you the name after, but they were they were there to essentially come down and be like, this is a massive business opportunity. The problem was that Mexico never changed its laws of exportation on it. And so it became this huge pain in the ass. And so what happened was you have a bunch of, uh, um, uh, a bunch of these Mexican farm workers who are working in California at the wineries up in uh, Sonoma and Napa, who then saw this opportunity and says, oh wait, we have tons of wild maguey growing all over uh, Sonoma, all over California. And so you started this whole new movement of oh, U.S. produced mezcal uh, to get around these like laws around. Like Niedo wouldn't let people. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot that comes directly from the U.S. Shit, man. And now Guadalajara and now, you know, everywhere and even in the territory of tequila. And so we'll see. I think it's still dwarfed by tequila, just like it is a tiny fraction of total sales, but... <sighs> Quantity, or excuse me, quality over quantity. Oh, like, quality. I, I'm not, I don't drink anything. This is high quality right here. Yeah. And so is the wine in Sonoma. It's like... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a couple of bottles. Just, this is uh, turning into a, a wine and spirits podcast. <laughs> I'm very happy about it. <laughs> Obviously, it's been a wine and spirits podcast for a while, but we've actually never talked about the wine and spirits. We've yeah, just imbibed them. It's always them. been underneath it all. <laughs> <laughs> they all know it, though. All the freaks know it. Are we pretentious for talking about this? Like, that's what actually I love about wine is it is very nuanced and it's very low time preference, right? You have to plan this stuff out. That's why I love yeah. the wine world in particular. I do, but to the point I made earlier, wine needs to go back to being more dangerous than it currently is because it does have this air of pretension, bullshit, snobbiness, and that's not what it comes from at all. Well, that's why I love the California wine yeah. scene in particular is because they are an affront they to that. that trend, yeah. And a, front, and a, a huge affront to that. Yeah, right? I like, agree. Let's uh, hope it stays that way. Well, you're worried about the fires, right? That's what you're saying? How, how bad has that been? What's going on with the fire situation in Northern California? It's now at a point where people are saying, I have worked my life. I've come to California and always wanted to live here and always said, I will always be a Californian. So now you have, you're starting to hear things like, if this has to happen every year, and every year I need to deal with two weeks of like choking smoke. How worth it is that, especially when the fires are increasingly encroaching on where I actually live. And so it's changing a mindset of this. So let's take a step back. What is the situation? Like what has happened in the last five to 10 years in particular that has changed the. Right. Cause like fire didn't come out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it all, I mean, it, it's all because of of zoning and planning and in, in, in my opinion there's again there's we as california continues to increase its you know people try to find their own little plot of of utopia like we were talking about earlier more and more of it is about finding the, all the last remaining corners of california in which you can build that and so there's money fueling and finding and building in those areas and so you build what maybe used to be small, you know, rural towns that are expanding out, that start to expand into actual wilderness that are just focused on building the services to, to sustain that town, but nothing about the environmental impact of the fact that that town is in the middle of a wildfire, historic wildfire zone. And so you, you get this idea of like, 
like high time, high time preference planning, of just putting it out there because people want a place to consume and have this idea of what it's they the want. It's a hot spot to be. A hot spot to be. And then it, it's like, oh, well, historically, there's been massive wildfires here every five years. So what are you going to do about that? And people find themselves just in the midst of it. And yeah, it turns into a situation where everybody has to help out. Uh, the like, topic fuck. that I just got out of was uh, one of the, one of the like, um, most popular things going on right now is this tool, because everyone in California has a pool, is this, this uh, fire hose that you put into your pool. And you can personally battle the fire coming around you. Boss. <laughs> and the reason is because like this when... It's true ingenuity. Yeah, when fires happen in the area, the water pressure goes to zero because all the fire engines are pulling from the, pulling from the water sources. And so like you as a homeowner... That's something you don't think about. No. And you as a homeowner be like, oh my God, the fire is right there. I'm going to turn on my hose and do something about it. It doesn't work. And so what happens is this new set of kind of tools are coming out of... Put it in your in your. You pool. have your water generator. It's <laughs> called your pool. The water generator is perfect, and you put it in your pool. And they're, they're, the funny thing is, like the marketing pictures of this are, they're dropping a hose into the pool, <laughs> and they're like personally battling a massive wildfire. <laughs> which little <is>, rascals <laughs> like taking down their, their which clubhouse. Is a horrible, horrible idea. But I don't condone that. You should leave, but you know, make sure you have insurance. Yeah, I mean, I honestly can't, uh, I, I can't even pretend to know what that's like. I've never lived through a quasi-forest fire. There was one time in, I was in Costa Rica, and there was, like, forest fires near <laughs> the surf resort I was staying at. But that's, it ruined my surf for the day. Yeah, it was fucking terrible. <laughs> Goddamn, Costa Rica sucks. <laughs> no, but honestly, like, yeah. I, I don't, like... I can't imagine what it's like living in an area in which you're like, oh, fire can just pop out of nowhere and fuck up my day. Yeah. I mean, it's that, it was definitely weird getting a call at like 5 a.m. seeing, hearing like your mom and I have evacuated, um, you know, we're going to this house. Uh, if you come, if you can get past the, the um, exclusion zones, please go get these like, you know, uh, um, photo books for us. You know, it's like, that's a strange thing to hear from like a parent, you know? Yeah. And so it's like forcing this weird, like, you know, dystopia on, on the whole thing in an area that was like once like, oh, this is where you come to just have the good life, you well, know? And that comment in particular is like really highlights what your parents think of first. Like get my memories, get oh, my yeah, happy yeah, memories. Yeah, for right? sure. Like, fuck man. It's so how, how much does eucalyptus play in all this? Is that a conspiracy? <laughs> I, you know what? I need to dive more into this eucalyptus thing. I, I think I'm just not educated enough on it. Yeah. But I know that they're highly flammable. And the reason why people hate eucalyptus is because there's one of these trees that grow up as rapidly as possible, have the lowest tree uh, root base, and so they inevitably just fall. And they're just these, like, disaster things that can spread, you know, Either, you know, even without fires are annoying, but yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so, you know, I'm going to look more into this. I'll get back to you, Marty. Yeah, yeah. Uncle Marty's. uh, uh, Spewing his conspiracies again. (laughs) (laughs) These aren't conspiracy theories. They're conspiracy facts, Will. All right. Eucalyptus grows in the way you just described it. And it's rampant throughout California. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm kidding. I was genuinely curious. This has been a hell of a night, man.
We didn't talk about Bitcoin for the last hour, I don't think. I know, that's wild. We try, and the funny thing is we tried to pull it back at certain points. Didn't need to go there. We're, so, all right, let's bring it back to Bitcoin. Let's end it on Bitcoin. What are, what are, like, where are we right now? Is, like, we're in the middle, in my view, we're in the middle of a bear market still. Um, I think people are sleeping at the wheel. I think Bitcoin's about to surprise a lot of people personally. Yeah. I don't want to uh, lead you to agree with me or anything, but I do think right now I can just tell you I'm getting a lot of uh, DMs from people asking about paid groups and stuff like that. Uh, the, the pod- a, that is a surefire sign. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and and again, the development, like things like Polar, yeah. WhatsApp, yeah. all yeah. this, sh- like what you're building, Fold yeah. App, like yeah. all this shit coming in. Like it feels like individuals are more equipped than ever to use Bitcoin. I, I completely agree. The The... If you think about the bull market, like last time, and people were like, okay, what do I do? What do I need to do? What do I need to have to get involved? Like that question's no longer there. People know the avenues. You have Cash App where it's been in front of their face forever. People all know Coinbase. Like the avenues in terms of immediate on-ramps are far more understood than ever before. And someone described like the having not as a fuel to the fire, but gravity reduction to gravity. Reduce. Yeah. Who was that? Um, I don't know, but it was really good. I really like that as well. What the fuck was that? So, apologies to that. We're going to get you and shout out you in the show notes. Give me, no, give me, I'm going to find this out right now. But that, that was such a great, like, cause that's everybody's like, Oh, the happenings are, was it, it might've been Phil Geiger from Unchained Capital. Don't could miss be a tribute, but could I don't be. want to miss a tribute. Yeah. So um, it was exactly like, I, I feel that that is very real. The amount of services that people have, the amount of knowledge that people have is more than ever before. Um, and so I, th- I think w- when that does happen, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be exciting, but. You know. uh, this was a uh, Malik Manikian. Mm, right. Um, uh, awesome Bitcoiner. He's got the, the lion in the red circle. Uh, Abby, for those who are visual Bitcoiners. Um, no, but it's true. It's like, it's not, the happenings are not rocket fuel, the gravity. It's mm-hmm. just like, all right, you have to live under this condition of the physics of the system now. The yep. system only delegates you X amount of coins per block reward until X block. Deal with it. Gravity just got a little heavier. So I'm, I, but basically I'm excited to uh, um, have a little lighter load, be able to jump a little higher. Um, <laughs> And, um, you know, honestly keep building this, this, this winter has been incredible. Like you don't see this kind of work being done in bulls. And so to have this amount of time heads down is why we're going to see this gravity come even like besides just the having like even more because of the services that are immediately at hand to a large group of people. I think it's that, I think it's. So how can people help what you're doing, help fold? help uh, the adoption of bitcoin um let's see i think i think in general is to is to to continue to um be curious about what bitcoin can be and what bitcoin can do and um hodl accumulate stack sets but also look to the use cases that are continuously building and that right now are stronger than ever and so I think with Fold, 
um, or any of the other stacking SaaS services, like just use them, give them feedback. Like we, our team lives and thinks about this all the time and take very seriously all the feedback we get. We make changes on the fly because of what we hear from people and we, the roadmap changes directly because of what we're hearing from the community of people using it. So the more, the more engagement we get, the better. Um, and I think that's true of everyone building in this space. Um, and so, you know, fold is going to be, is, is available for everybody now. So, uh, go check that out, but you know, start experimenting, check be curious about all the other builders and start using the services, send some sats and stack some sats. Um, and I think we're all going to be better as a result. I do as well. Thank you for bringing this, Cal. We crushed more than half this bottle. <laughs> I'm starting to slur my words. Uh, I think this is best to hit. And on this recording, where can we find you? At WLRBS. Perfect. At WLRBS on yep. Twitter. Well, Reeves, fucking legend. Peace and love, freaks. <laughs> <laughs>